Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizwi and as always with me is Armin Navabi. Armin, how are you? Hello. And um, so today we actually have the return of Andrew Seidel from the, the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And let me just say a quick word, a few words about you, Andrew, and this is a very exciting time for you. I know Andrew is a constitutional civil rights attorney with the Freedom From Religion Foundation, uh, which is the largest advocacy group for atheists in the United States. And he has an explosive new book coming out. It's his first book. Uh, it's coming from Sterling Publishing. It's called The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And that's coming out on May 14th, right? So Again, Tuesday. And so sorry, if you're listening to this on uh, audio, um, as recording, it's it's probably already out. So go and pick up a copy right now. You're not going to regret it. Uh, I, I read it and it's it's absolutely brilliant and it's very, very relevant to this time. So, Andrew, how are you feeling? Book launch I'm, week. I'm excited, man. I'm really, I'm ready for this to happen. It's been a long time in the making and uh, yeah, I'm excited and really happy to be on with you guys. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's a, the honors are all ours as always. So, Andrew, you have been on with us before. So yeah, that's was, also another thing. It was and, a great uh, that episode, was, by the way. That was a great yeah, episode. Yeah. Fantastic episode. So we, we had a lot of fun then. And so it's, it's really, really good to have you back. So first things first, right? Um, is America, everybody nowadays, especially, you know, with the current administration, the current sort of political no, no, atmosphere? Before, before, before you mention that, I want to emphasize <laughs> people to go... This is a, just a summary of the stuff that we're going to talk about. But yeah. if you really want to know... Uh, uh, get into the details. Make sure you go get this book. Okay. Again, what's the title again? One more time. It's called "The Founding Myth: Why Christian Nationalism Is Un-American." Right. It's going to be released on Tuesday. Check it out. Like uh, we want to make sure that these uh, these kind of books uh, are received well, so that people see that there is a demand for it. So please go out and check it out. It's a, it's a great way to support this kind of content. But sorry, sorry, so, Ali, go on. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so my, my my first question, I can't avoid this, Andrew. You said why Christian nationalism is un-American is a subtitle. Yeah. But um, was that uh, sort of a watering down of it? Did you want to say why Christianity is un-American originally? Yeah, I mean, and or I do. <laughs> I I am a little bit more explicit in the book. Um, you know the 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 central question that we're really investigating is whether or not Judeo-Christian principles influenced the founding of the United States. Um, and this is kind of a claim that we hear all the time here. It's whenever you debunk the claim, the claim that we're a Christian nation, everybody falls back on, well, I meant we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Mm. And I set out to determine if that was accurate. And the more I investigated it, I realized that Judeo-Christian principles actually are thoroughly opposed to the principles on which the United States was founded, and that the two systems differ and conflict to such a degree that it is fair to say, even if you are being blunt, that Christianity is un-American. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I do, I think that is absolutely fair. And it's especially true if you look at the principles that Christian nationalists, which are the people who make this claim that we are founded as a Christian nation, founded on Judeo-Christian principles, um, the principles that they hold most dear uh, are are certainly un-American. Yeah. I, I wanted to actually read really quick from the, the Publishers Weekly Review, right? And yeah. you got a really good review from Publishers Weekly, which is, congratulations on that. That's actually a... a pretty prestigious thing uh, to have. Um, So uh, you wrote here, uh, so they say, Judeo-Christian principles, he argues, Andrew argues, are directly opposed to the Enlightenment principles on which the United States was founded. Quote, to put it bluntly, Christianity is un-American. End quote. So that's what you said. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, this is one of the things that we've talked about here, that, you know, the U.S., was it a lot of when people say well, it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles? I usually like to remind them that the Enlightenment, the Age of Enlightenment, <laughs> was actually a rebellion against, you know, the whole idea of uh, any nation being founded on Judeo-Christian principles because we did have that for a very long time. It was called the Dark Ages in yeah. Europe. There was a time when religion ruled the world. It was called the Dark Ages. So witch burning and uh, you know. The Inquisition, all of these things were like a, this is what happens when you when you found something on the Judeo-Christian principle. So, so can I can I ask a question? Um, I mean, I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to try to um, you know pick the best, the most important ones. But I I have I've tried to I've seen a lot of the arguments for why America is not a Christian nation, and I'm sure you're going to answer you know bring them up. But I've been looking for good arguments, like at least trying to steal men the other side. And I have been having a hard time to try to f- even figure out where the idea of um, America being a Christian nation comes from. Can you give us like, like I've seen their arguments, but they're really bad. Um, yes. I'll try to steal men them as much as possible. But do you, can you try to steal men them and see what are the best you know, counterpoints to this? You know, why, why do even people say America is a Christian nation? I mean, they say it, they say it, they're not actually coming from a legitimate sort of historical or legal analysis. That's not what is motivating those statements, right? The goal is actually to redefine what it is to be an American. They want it to be that to be an American is to be a Christian, um, you can't be an American without being a Christian person. That is the goal. And you can see it in a lot of the policies that they're en- enacting. I mean, the immigration ban is a really kind of a great example of that. So it's I don't think, and this is part of the problem, I don't think they are coming from a place of intellectual honesty in a lot of their arguments, especially when you look at the history and when you look at uh, the, the the legal principles on which the nation was built. They are coming from a place of, it's an emotional argument that they are trying to make to their followers. I mean, and it really is this sort of in-group, out-group type thing that they're trying to argue. So <laughs> I don't think they really have that many good arguments, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Um, Okay, but the, but the best one is basically the ones that admit that it, it was not founded on Christianity, but maybe that's something that we could hope for. But that's not the majority, right? Because the majority of the people think that it was founded. Like, the majority of them are the people that think that United States is a Christian co- country. It was founded based on Judeo-Christian values. 
uh, with that intention, right? That's the majority view. I mean, and and that's certainly what they argue, and right. and that is, I mean, that's the defining characteristic of a Christian nationalist. So, right. you know, the subtitle of the book is why why Christian nationalism is un-American, and we, Christian nationalism used to be this this sort of like um, like an impotent sideshow right. in American politics. Like it was it was the fringe conservative movement aligned with this fringe religious movement. And it's kind of slowly been gaining a little bit of prominence over the past few years. But really, with the 2016 election, it all of a sudden just took center stage because Trump rode this wave of Christian nationalism and the lies and the myths that underlie that identity into the highest office in the land. And, you know, one of the, I actually look at a study that was done in the first chapter of the book in the introduction um, where uh, they uh, Andrew Whitehead out of Clemson University looked at Trump voters and tried to figure out what was the number one indicator that somebody would vote for Trump in the 2016 election. And more so than race, more so than religion, more so than even political party, whether or not the person believed that America was a Christian nation and founded on Judeo-Christian principles was the number one indicator of a Trump voter. So he he... Wow. tapped into this vein of Christian nationalism and and became president on on that basis. Right. Um, so it, it really is important. So the the so forgetting about the steelman because that's the minority, the the main arguments um that I've seen and Ali jump in if you know any any uh, other arguments that bring, people bring up from the least uh, popular one to the most popular one uh the least popular ones is when they give examples of like, well, the president swears on the Bible, the the Pledge of Allegiance has one nation under God, uh, the our money has in God we trust God on we it. Trust. So that's just the examples that people give. But then a more popular one, uh, a little bit more popular argument is that the founders have quotes that they they show that they were uh, that they believed in religion, even if it even if they can't find quotes that show that they were Christian, uh, they they do have quotes that they show that they were religious and they believed in a God, not a de like they say that when we say they're deistic, that's not true because they show, they show us quotes that they believed in a God that they did intervene in our lives. So that's the second more, um, that's the second argument that's a little bit more popular. But the most popular argument is that um, morality as a whole comes from uh, Judeo-Christian Judeo values. values and to believe in any form of punishment or judgment um, mm -hmm. or freedom like that the under you have to believe in a God to believe in all of that so the fact that United States <coughs> has you know believe in liberty believe in justice it must be founded on Judeo-Christian value because mm -hmm. without a God, none of that makes any sense. So that's the yeah. most popular argument I've seen. I know all of it is ridiculous, but I'm just... Is that your experience? I mean, yes, and I'm happy to say that I address every one of those arguments pretty yeah. conclusively and soundly, I think, in the book. Um, everything from the In God We Trust, One Nation Under God. So the last part of the book, part four, I call Argument by Idiom, and it goes over all of those different things that you mentioned and a few more in, in the process. And, you know, I think a lot of people realize that those are not actually from the founding era. You know, those are, they were in the 1860s and the 1950s, but we can make another argument on top of that. You know, it's not just that those don't show 
some sort of influence on the founding era. But we know that Christian nationalists imposed them on the country deliberately during times of national strife and fear. So they were actually taking advantage of a scared populace to impose their religion on everybody else, which which I think is a critical point that our side often does not raise in this issue. It's not just that no these have no bearing on the founding at all. Right. It's that they were they were deliberately imposed on a nation um, that they couldn't really fight back at that particular time so, because busy I, fighting I, a I, civil war, for instance. Yeah, I, I think since you're bringing this up, we should give an example of that. So you mentioned 1950s. Was that the Pledge of Allegiance or the? That was, yeah, that was the there, Pledge of Allegiance. A, there's a number of them in the 1950s, but yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance is the big one. So that where it says in one nation under God, indivisible, yeah. right? So the under God was added in the 1950s as a reaction to to to, to um, uh, take a stand against the Soviet Union, which was this godless, atheistic, mm. uh, communist um, superpower that the U.S. was fighting against then. So that was one of the things that they took advantage of. So that's an example of uh, one of the reasons that something like that was added and, um, and and it's a it's a really good example because one nation indivisible became one nation under god indivisible mm-hmm. so you're literally taking you're literally dividing the indivisible with religion which historically is the most divisive force known to man i mean right. you have so you are they are taking this beautiful unifying sentiment and they are injecting their religion into the middle of it and dividing the nation uh, and you see the same thing actually happening with in god we trust the original de facto ma- motto of the united states was e pluribus unum right from from many one from many people one nation from many states one country and it's a beautiful unifying sentiment and then it's wiped out with this this exclusionary alienating religious sentiment and they're doing that deliberately but but didn't the declaration yeah. of independence doesn't that have god in there it does have so, god in uh there. that's also in your book it's yeah so there's it's there's, done there's... <laughs> sorry before you answer <laughs> go i gotta it, tell go the it. audience and everybody who's listening to this um and armin that's an excellent question a lot of people are going to ask that question but when you say that you know you've when you read this book, the arguments are so good and so conclusive and so well-referenced and thoroughly researched. I mean, um, even if you are hate reading it, where you're just like, oh, I hate this guy. I just want to read this book. You can have a very <laughs> ha- hard time countering them. That's I'm just, good. I'm guaranteeing that right now. But wow. but yeah, go ahead. I appreciate that. I'm going to like, I think I'm going to clip a part of that out and just put it up <laughs> Do on it. Twitter. Uh- <laughs> I would be, I'd, I'd be happy. Yeah. But, but there there are a few sort of lofty references in the Declaration of Independence, which was drafted in 1776 before the United States was actually a country that it, it, that it wasn't really creating our nation. It was uh, declaring independence mm. <laughs> from yeah. Great Britain. Um, and I actually go over. I spend a lot of time on the Declaration of Independence and I go over every one of the supposed references in there. I mean, the real reference, the only reference to God explicitly is the laws of nature and of nature's God, Mm. which really, when you put it in context, doesn't sound anything like the Christian God. And none of them are explicitly Judeo-Christian at all, Uh, even though they could have been right. They could have said the laws of Jesus, but they didn't. They said the laws of nature and of nature's God. Um, another one that's in there is their creator, which always gets 
slightly changed by politicians like Trump to our creator, mm, which is yeah. actually it's a small but a very subtle and important difference. But I mean, Christian nationalists are not known for their subtlety, nor will they ever be. Um, <laughs> and then there's a couple at the end. Uh, divine providence and supreme judge of the world and those were actually added on at the last second they're sort of this this um religious window dressing the document was already drafted and done and they just the committee on uh, on the whole thought it was a little too godless for them so they threw on a couple at the very end there um, yeah. so yeah on the whole not a good argument for the christian nationalists to so, cite so what was the context of because uh, you know you said that and, and this is a good point it doesn't say endowed by our creator it says endowed by their creator huh. yeah. so Why? what was the context of that so well, because they're and and this is the thing that I that, that's so striking, you know, that people latch on to these these four different phrases in the declaration and that they really try to make them into something that they're not. But if you read the declaration as a whole, it is striking how much it is focused on this world and on people. I mean, it begins when in the course of human events. And then it goes on to say, um, when in the course of human events, one people must sever the political bands that connect them with another. It's talking all along the way about people um, and what's happening among, they say, um, uh, and assume the separate and equal station uh, among the powers of the earth. I'm, I'm butchering some of this language and I apologize to Thomas Jefferson for doing so. But, you know, <laughs> it's talking about the powers of the earth. Uh, it's talking about people. It's talking about um when in the course of human events, it, there's nothing godly or on this supernatural plane about it. It really is focused on, for them, the here and now. And to somehow read in all this um, religious language is, is kind of kind of nonsense to me, really. Yeah. Um, they did, the fun fact, there was in the, the rough draft of the declaration, there was a mention of Christianity. Oh. Uh, and so somebody actually... deliberate, so somebody, somebody took that out. Like, yeah. so it's not like, if if it wasn't an original draft, it, it's not like they didn't put it in there. If there was, if it was an original draft, and then it wasn't, there was they took it out on purpose. So they took it out on purpose, but they they took it out because Thomas Jefferson accused the quote Christian King of Great Britain of engaging in the slave trade. Huh. And they took it out because they didn't want to condemn the slave trade in the document um, and tie the slave trade to. Christianity. Uh, so it's it's a really fascinating, and I have that in there, and I actually have, a, uh, we, we put in the book um, a picture of the, the original rough draft of the declaration with that line in it so people Wait, can see it. so they remove Christianity in defense <coughs> of the slave trade? Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so that's kind of interesting because the Confederacy and the Confederate Constitution, yeah. right? There's, so people are, there is a confounding factor here that there are a lot of people who really do, that. there's this pervasive sense that America is a Christian nation, Christian nation, Christian nation. A lot of that has to do with the Confederacy and the Confederate Constitution, doesn't it? And, it, well, and, and that was more legitimately a, a Christian yeah. nation. Um, the Confederacy actually copied a lot of the original U.S. Constitution, but added a bunch of godly language into it. Right. The U.S. Constitution is notably godless. There's no mention right. of a deity. There's only one mention of religion in the original document, and that's to right. bar religion, ban religious tests for public office. And yeah. then when they amended it again, it included two more mentions of religion, again, to keep religion out of government and government out of religion. Um, so it, it's this notably godless document, and the Confederacy, when they 
rebelled and drafted their own. They they quote unquote fixed that in their minds. And and this kind of ties it back to actually the first question you asked, Armin, which is if you're steel manning the arguments for the other side, what are the best arguments they have that were founded on Judeo-Christian principles? And their best arguments actually are the influence of Judeo-Christianity on this country's treatment of black people and women, uh, on on justifying the slave trade and on justifying the subjugation of women. So all the um, shitty parts of the history. Y- yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd mean, like to don't... note here that Peter Bogosian on, on Twitter has uh, just asked the same question. Uh, what's the best argument you've heard against your position? Right. And how did you respond? Yeah, I mean, we so that, give them that, that. Let's give them that. Yeah, let's. I, I mean, like, yeah, the Christian. The, those are the Christian parts of the, um, you know, and, United States. And that's definitely the best argument in their position for their position, but it's one that they don't ever want to claim, of course. Right. So, I mean, really, the question that that the book is investigating is: Did Judeo-Christian principles positively <laughs> influence right. the founding of the United States? And the answer to that is most certainly not. No. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, no. I want to emphasize something that you mentioned because um, a lot of people focus on the Declaration of Independence because yeah. it has at least one thing in there that they could hang on to. But if you go yeah. to the Constitution, it becomes yeah. a lot. Less, a lot more godless and in fact anti-religious than the declaration and also the bill of rights right so it it has it, it has very clear statements in there trying to limit re- religion yeah and i mean i think the declaration as a whole is is an anti-biblical document i think it's right. very very clear i mean if you read the bible of the time and you read people who were defending um, against the idea of independent, American independence, who were saying the colonies can't do this. Mm. They often were citing the Bible. Romans 13 specifically says that God mm. gave rulers power on earth and that to rebel against those rulers is to rebel against God. Right. Had the founders been devout believers, devout Christians, they would not have rebelled. Right. Uh, and, and so to me, you know, there there's a fundamental conflict between the ethos of the Declaration and that which you see in the Bible as well. I think it is fair to call it an anti-biblical document. So, but but the Constitution. Okay. So the two the two important uh, parts of the Constitution. In the Constitution, it says there's no religious test, right? For yeah, that's article Article Six, Section Three. Right. And then also in the Bill of Rights, they have the no laws res- uh, respecting an es- uh, the establishment of any religion. Those are the key two examples that we use for our side, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Article 6 and then the First Amendment. Correct. Perfect. And but OK, but here's the thing, though, where uh, when people mention that the United States is a Christian country, uh, there's different things that di- different people mean different things when they say that. Yep. Some people mean it when they said legally it's a Christian country, mm-hmm. right? Some people mean like not legally, legally a secular, but our morals and culture of the United States uh, people is a Christian is a Christian nation in that sense. And some people will um, go a little bit milder, like okay, fine, our culture and our morality maybe it's not all Christian, but it's been influenced by Christianity. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say these are the three different levels when of what do you think? And I don't I don't I mean I think it's probably more there's a pretty broad spectrum that people address on those those kind of and those are probably three points along that spectrum for yeah. sure. Um and I do try to take 
go to pains to point out in the in the introduction of the book not only what i'm arguing but also what i'm what i'm not arguing right and i'm not arguing that christianity hasn't had any influence on our culture right. uh i mean or or that people in this country are not christian uh i mean i but but to me those are those are dodges on on the argument when the when the real central argument is challenged that's when people initially claim we are a christian nation none of them really mean i just mean there are a lot of Christians here like that's a, yeah. that you're just making a demographic statement and if that were what you were trying to say you would say there are a lot of Christians in this country but but that's not really what they're getting after they fall back on that when challenged just like they fall back on the idea that we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles um, and, and you know the reason I chose to focus on on that instead of the broader idea that we're a Christian nation is because it is this fallback position mm. And nobody ever challenges them on that fallback position. So you, you'll say, well, no, of course we're not a Christian nation. And you'll, you'll maybe say, look at the Constitution. It's a completely godless document. Mm-hmm. Or you'll cite the Treaty of Tripoli, which says the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Right. And then right. they'll fall back and say, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I meant we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And this is the, it's this nebulous term that everybody's like, I don't really know what that means. And so it, it kind of just gets ignored and passed over. And it, it's be, become more and more popular. And right. it, it are, we need to address it. Uh, and because this, it, these lies are now driving public policy. Right. I mean, I already mentioned immigration policy, but in, we see, we're seeing it in education, civil rights, women's rights, minority rights, huh. LGBTQ rights, foreign policy. Uh, judges are actually deciding cases based on these lies and yeah, myths. So it's, right. it's not just culture war issues. Right. Uh, I mean, it's critical. So, so you're, they basically try to sneak in by saying, like, no, we just mean influenced by, but they actually, what they really want is to, put, to make the argument that it's legally a Christian country, right? But the thing is that even, even, if they, even the people that say it's just influenced by uh, Christianity, and that's why we call it a Christian nation, well, I mean, this is something that Rationality Rules pointed out, so I have to give credit to him. But in that sense, then we should mention that it's an, um, many, many things. Uh, sure. More, more than Christian countries, it's an Enlightenment country, right? Absolutely. Because it's influenced and by Enlightenment values more than it has been by Christianity. Absolutely. And if we can show that Christian values and principles are opposed right. to those principles on what it's, it, what we were, that we were founded on, we can discount that influence entirely. Right. We can say, look, look if, the, if these two are opposed, you can't say that this one influenced it because we settled on this thing that is totally different. Right. It doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, and that's one, of the, so that's one of the reasons I really tried to hammer that in the book. Yeah, I saw something that Aaron Ra once had. Um, I, I don't know if it's his own quote or not, but he said the first... I'm paraphrasing it. He said the the uh, the first uh, uh, the first commandment is in direct contradiction to the first amendment. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which I loved so just just to read that uh, the first commandment is thou shalt have no gods before me, um, and the first amendment is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment or religion or prohibiting free exercise thereof. So um, yeah, and I mean uh, I just right, wrote I right just wrote an op-ed basics. about that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, yeah. it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, it, it's I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You cannot write a more un-American rule than that. I mean, yeah. if that were the law, I mean, it, it would conflict with the Constitution in a number of different ways. I mean, it's absolutely right on. Right, and uh, another the other point that they make that if there because we have morality, we ha- we have law, we value freedom. You have to assume God 
uh, to get all of that, and that's why we're a Christian nation. I mean, if you accepted that argument, then every Islamic country would also should be declared a Christian nation because they also believe in a God <laughs> that brings morality, right? Um, and also, I mean, that's that's just ridiculous because we know that before the Bible, we had other other kings and rulers to bring laws. I mean, Hammurabi and many other older ones, right? So, I mean, ancient Persia. Um, a, a lot of the many, not a, not many of them, but some of their laws were the Greek ones at least were more in line with what the Enlightenment thinkers came up with later than what the Christian. I mean, the Christian morality. Um, it, it, a lot of Christians think that morality it was invented with the Bible. Yeah. So yeah. And I have I do I spend a good amount of time. You know, one of the popular arguments when you have a conversation about this always goes to the religion of the founding fathers right. and what they believed. And in the book, I point out that this is actually it doesn't matter Why? what they personally believe because whatever they personally believed, you would still have to connect to that personal belief. Mm somehow to influencing the founding of our country, which number one, you can't do. And number two, we know that they wanted state and church separate because they were pretty damn explicit <laughs> when they were talking about it. And the constitution that they wrote, as we've already discussed, was godless. So it's, to me, that's a non-starter argument, but I do spend a lot of time in those chapters. There's two chapters on the founders talking about this, this idea that morality comes from religion and what the founders thought specifically about that and what it means for the Christian nationalist argument. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at the, at the end, it really does. If, if their piece of that argument is true, it actually turns kind of things back on them and it, it, in a way. And I, I kind of don't want to give it away, but I kind of also don't want to leave this hanging out there. Um, in a way, it actually disproves their argument okay. more more than proves their argument. Um, but I think I'm, people might have to buy the book and read chapters. Okay, let's leave that, that as yeah. a teaser. <laughs> so I have to say, speaking of uh, stuff that disproves and proves uh, that you know people actually is uh, you, you wrote in your book about the golden rule, and this is yeah. I so I like this a lot because I hear this all the time. I've actually heard it said on TV. Is they say that you know that America is a Christian nation because we were founded on the Golden Rule, yeah. <laughs> and the Golden Rule is not Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it predates Christianity by. It's, it's in the Hammurabi, centuries. isn't it? Yeah, it's in the Hammurabi. Hammurabi, Confucius. It's it's Jewish. It's a, you know pretty much no, everybody's no, no. eye for treat sorry, others. Eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's in the Hammurabi. The, the yeah. oldest one I found was was um, a reference to sort of you know this is kind of it's the reciprocity principle. It's pretty basic morality. It's not anything earth shattering um was on a it, it was in egypt and it's from 2000 bce um so it's oh. about it, i mean it's significantly farther along than uh, judeo-christianity farther back than judeo-christianity it's actually based on arab uh, arab values and uh, i mean uh, egypt wasn't arab back then i know that it's a joke no but the, the point i think the point from what we're what we're getting at and what i try to do say in the book is like this is a universal human principle that every kid understands at a very early age this, this is not mm. judeo-christianity doesn't have a monopoly on the idea that you should treat other people the way that you would like to be treated that's pretty basic it's 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 elemental to our humanity right uh and, and to allow judeo-christianity to claim that as its own is this this religious arrogance run amok and also you kind of have to prove the first point that we just glossed over which is the United States is founded on the golden rule. And I haven't really seen anybody make a convincing argument on that point. 
I mean, it's a nice idea, but I haven't seen anybody really make a convincing argument on that point either. I give them that in the book because it doesn't matter because the golden rule is not Judeo-Christian. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But I also think, uh, sorry, Armin, uh, uh, let me just ask one question uh, since we're kind of on this and also uh, going back to the Declaration of Independence, your your third chapter is titled Declaring Independence from Mm Judeo-Christianity. So the whole idea is that that when the U.S. did break away from the British, right, it wasn't just declaring independence from Britain, but all of those values, like those uh, uh, that that were based on Judeo-Christianity, like okay, we're separating this, and um, yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. You know, the King George was the defender of the faith. He was also the head of this Anglican Church, and the founders had. A, they had a lot of really great examples of what a Christian nation looked like, not just from Europe where some of their forefathers and some of them fled from, um, but also from in the United States itself. I mean, up in Massachusetts, the Puritans and the pilgrims, you know, they fled religious persecution. Yes, but they didn't actually come to establish religious freedom the way we talk about it. You know, they came to establish their own theocracies and the founders could look back on that and say, that's a terrible, terrible idea. We need to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> and that is part of what they were doing when they were making this, this declaration of independence was, was severing not just from the old world politically, but from the political ideas of the old world as well. Right. So, so when we, when we talk about the values that, um, you know, people think about the values that are worth protecting or promoting um, and is associated with Western countries and United States. The the three, I think most, and let me know if you want to add anything to this, but the three most popular ones are free speech, right? Freedom, mm-hmm. you know, anti-slavery and the equal, you know, equality, equal opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, women rights, gay rights and all that. So, um, these are the values I think when that people refer to to say that these countries are superior to other countries because they have these values, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but none of these are because of Christianity. Uh, and the the main reasons why Christians try to claim credit for it because the Western countries where these ideas became popular were also Christian countries. Right. And that's how they say, like, well, look, it happened in Christian countries. That's why it must be because of Christianity. But to let me the, to counter that, <coughs> what one thing you have to mention is, uh, well, Christianity was in these countries for a long time and these values were not there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they, these yeah. countries were Christians uh, for more than a thousand years without having these values. Only when Enlightenment era came, these values became popular. So if it was because of Christianity, what took so long, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. <laughs> right. And what, another thing is that communism and Nazism also came from Christian countries. Communism mm-hmm. came from Germany. Uh, actually, both they, came, they both came from Germany. Uh, but if, if, if we want to say that the, because they came from Christian countries, therefore they're Christian, then communism and Nazism will also become Christian. No? Based on that uh, logic. I, th- I mean, I think that's true. And there's even there's other arguments that you can make, too, for instance. Um, I didn't delve too much in, into the book um, on this particular subject, but there are a lot of studies out there that show that in 
the colonies in what would become the United States that um, a very low percentage of the population was quote unquote churched, meaning that they were regular members of a particular religious congregation, something like between 10 and 15 percent, which is really, really low. That's not a very religiously diverse or religiously um, adhere. They don't go to church. (laughs) I mean, to put it simply. And there was um, shortly after the founding, there's this time in United States history that's known as the Second Great Awakening, where this this sort of Christian revival took over the country and everybody converted and became Christians. But for there to have been that Second Great Awakening, that means that everybody was asleep. I mean, that means that people weren't Christian in the first place. Otherwise, why would you have this? Uh, so even, even the basic idea that, well, this was a country full of Christians mm. is flawed. Right, right. And also, I mean, all of these three main ideas, uh, do you guys want to mention any other Enlightenment values? Because these are the main ones, I think. But all of these three... Free well, I got one. What? I mean, so, so you know, if you, if you look at the First Amendment, it, it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion right. or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition their government for a redress of grievances. So it's like pretty compact, but it protects six different rights. <laughs> okay. Uh, it protects secular government, free exercise of religion, press, speech, uh, the ability to assemble, assemble. and yeah. to petition your government. And if you kind of look at all of those, they really are meant to protect an even greater right. And this is the one unlimited right that we have as, as Americans. It is the right to think freely. And that's really what it was about. You you can think freely. The, the government is not going to uh, tell you you have to believe in a particular God. Mm. You can speak on your thoughts freely with with it there are there are a little bit of limits on that from time to time you can write about your thoughts freely you can assemble and get together and discuss your thoughts you can even petition your government about the thoughts that you have i mean really that is the central goal of the first amendment is to protect the freedom of thought first and foremost right and and i mean i've called i don't know how many i don't think we if we want to go through them we can but i collected (laughs) um but bible verses in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament <laughs> that goes against free speech yeah. uh, that promotes oh, yeah. so goes against freedom in general by promoting slavery uh, mm-hmm. and is definitely against equal opportunity it's anti-woman anti-woman rights right so for Look, all you don't even you you don't even have to go far. You don't have to go through the whole Bible. You can just go to the Ten Commandments. All of those problems are right there in the Ten Commandments <laughs> yeah, itself, right. including punishing innocent children for the crimes, quote-unquote, crimes of their parents. Right. So they're even worse than that. Just focus on those Ten Commandments, which are terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's important yeah. to point to all of the ones yeah. in the New Testaments as well, because a lot yes. of people think like, well, Old Testament, whatever. But new, the New Testament itself has specific verses against free speech, promoting slavery, and against equal opportunity. So all the things that we value and that came out of the Enlightenment, the Bible has doesn't even just hint against being against it, has specific verses that shows that the Bible stands against these values. I mean, I can't understand how anybody with a straight face could say these values comes from the Bible. Like, I don't even understand how this idea is so popular. Why is this and, it, well, and it's also completely undercut by American history. And I do go, I do try to point this out in a couple of places in the book. So, I mean, if you look at the, the main arguments for, for segregation, 
in the American South, uh, when the country was trying to desegregate, the main arguments for it were religious and they were rooted in the Bible. And you have these these preachers um, writing tracts and giving sermons about Jesus, the master segregationist, was the title of one of them. Uh, it's the same thing back at the Civil War. You know, there there was a theological argument going on about whether or not the God of the Bible condones slavery. And the South had the way better side of that theological argument. Right. Terrible argument in terms of humanity and human rights and logic and reason. But when you're looking at the Bible, they certainly had the better side of the religious oh, argument. They, on that. they absolutely yeah. did. And I think uh, recently when, I think in 2015, when the Supreme Court uh, uh, greenlighted same-sex marriage mm -hmm. in the United States, uh, people were putting up uh, these quotes uh, from uh, the people back yeah. then who were justifying slavery using the Bible. And they're like, okay, so what was this? What were they justifying and what were they opposing? Um, and uh, a lot of people couldn't tell whether it was a recent quote about same-sex marriage or whether it was in the past justifying slavery. So it was uh, it was pretty incredible Some of the when you read some of the things that people said uh, back then. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it really, it really was. And so yeah. how does... Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, how, how does... Um, so we were talking about in in Europe, right? And I've seen this actually in the atheist community, especially since around 2015, 2016, since the rise of Trump and a lot of this far-right activity, is that uh, even some atheists are beginning to glamorize Christianity. They're like, yeah, we're atheists, but we have to remember um, our Christian roots and, you know, how, and, and especially, the, this is probably more of a European phenomenon uh, I've seen it. There's, a, you know, one mainstream author, Douglas Murray, uh, mm -hmm. who in his book, uh, The Strange Death of Europe, he talks about it. He speaks very positively of Christianity, even though he is an atheist. Other guys, and that from that all the way to like shock jock type people like Milo Yiannopoulos, also an atheist. Journey no, I think he's Catholic. He's Catholic. He's not. But there is. Um, so what about the uh, European states? What do you think? Uh, of this idea of people in the atheist community um, sort of glamorizing Christianity as, as a way to, uh, maybe as a response to foreign immigration from Islam. Islamic countries. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's an interesting, I was actually, as you were talking, I was thinking it was probably more related to the idea that, um, you know, there's this narrative, at least in the United States, there's this narrative um, that Christians are this persecuted majority, I guess. Um, and that they're, you know, they're constantly suffering persecution at the hands of this this uh, li liberal judges and this awful culture. Um, and I was oh, thinking the maybe war it was on more, Christmas. That's yeah, the, that um, kind of stuff. And I was thinking maybe it was more tied to that. But that's a, you're you've got me rethinking that now. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if I know the answer to that. But I, I don't see any, certainly don't see any reason to to glamorize Christianity. Um, especially given what it's done for the world. My my guess is that people that are defending the West, quote-unquote the West, they say that, you know what, it doesn't matter if this is, if this is real or not, okay? Mm. The West is under attack, our identity is under attack, and whatever is Western should be protected. And Christianity is Western, <coughs> so it should be protected. And whatever is the symbol of the West we're just going to use that as a shield from whatever to against what uh, whatever foreign forces and foreign culture and foreign ideology that is coming at us. Like it's our. I mean, Jesus was a Middle Eastern brown guy, though. <laughs> he looked like me more than he looked like Andrew. Yeah, that hundred percent. Right. But I mean, that, that's also that's no also offense, an... Andrew. I mean, I'm not saying that. 
Yeah. None taken. I mean, that's also it's also a knee jerk response, right? To say that, well, we should protect everything just because it's Western, whatever that means. It, you know, why don't we why don't we protect and try to save what's good? And this is kind of what I touch on in the last chapter of the book. Like there are a few things that are that religion has adopted that are quote unquote good. I mean, we were already talking about the golden rule, but it's not religious. That is part of our, our basic elemental shared humanity. And those are the things that we need to save. And we need to jettison the tribalism that comes with Christianity and other religions. Uh, especially if we, we need to keep the things that are worth saving and jettison all the rest of the religious nonsense. I mean, nothing that is worth saving has come out of religion. Do you... I don't think that's unfair. I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, do you agree with that? I don't. I, I'm like I. I'm struggling to find a single. Okay, just other than I, I would, other than would... other than other than literature, history, and like fun art, art. No, not not art. No, 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 art. Because without religion, we will still have art right like it's not like if you remove religion all of a sudden there would not be beautiful buildings it would be beautiful buildings for a different reason right but i'm just saying like religion itself didn't give us anything other than maybe just enjoying studying history and what happened to people like just looking at it as a, from a historical perspective but there's no values that came out of religion that is worth preserving do you agree with that andrew i think for the most part i do i mean I, I'm always reluctant. I'm a lawyer, so I'm always reluctant to agree uh, wholly with sweeping statements. But, <laughs> but this um, is not a court, so <laughs> this is yeah, I'm... yeah. No, I mean, I th I think that I think for the most part that is right, and there, are, it's kind of what I was talking about. The few good things that religion has adopted aren't they aren't unique to religion or original to religion. It, religion has just sort of you know uh, adopted it as its own and claimed it as its own and to me the golden rule is the, the perfect example of this uh and it's it's that is not inherently religious and we shouldn't treat it as such so i, I mean, would yeah, claim I, that i would claim that there's the, those ones the ones that you mentioned that it took for it's not original to religion i i would say i would blame religion for for more than just taking it from other places i would blame them from for simplifying it to to a point of making it useless like it's well, not it's not like they just took other people's good good you know teachings they took really complicated very nuanced advanced discussions of ethics and morality and they turned it into something you know one-liners that is pretty much useless and very simplistic right no I, I i do agree with that and i think the ten commandments and I, I have a whole section in the book where i go over every single ten commandment uh every every single one of the ten commandments and that that i is a kind yeah, of a perfect great. example of that right. i mean even the even the do not kill or do not murder whichever way it's interpreted strictures in the ten commandments are are at least in the original are not are not these moral codes. It's don't kill somebody who believes the way you do. You can kill right. anybody else you want. Yeah. Um, which is so, gay I mean, people. Which, yeah, which and it goes to exactly what you're talking about. It takes it takes this basic moral principle and warps it uh, using the religious impulse. So, I, yeah, I think yeah. that's probably true. I, I also would, uh, Armin, I'd probably, just for messaging purposes, I, I mean, I agree with you too, but I would rephrase it and saying, because, you know, if you say that there's nothing of use that came out of the Bible, some people might take it to mean that there was nothing good in the bible so what i would say well, that there's nothing saying, yeah but there there is nothing good in the bible 
that is original to the Bible. No, as I no, think, there's nothing. You, that's my claim is there's nothing good in the Bible. <laughs> no, but I, as, what I mean, no, I mean, I mean, the there are is, some, there are some lovely turns of phrase in the Bible. There's some useless nonsense in, in there. The in the Bible in as well. Too, yeah. But, no, but, but what I'm I saying is like, you know, when you have things like uh, the nonviolence, turn the other cheek, and some of those things would be considered good by some people and no, not to that, everybody. You know? Yeah. Okay. But, but not, but not that, to anybody that has makes any logical sense. Yeah, but the, it's uh. not. None of that stuff is original <laughs> to the Bible. Like the bad stuff usually is unique to these books. I mean, the same thing with the Quran. Like all of the stuff that's good in the Quran, mm. like you know, paying charity and taking care of orphans. I mean, these are things that predate. They're not original to the religion. Uh, but the stuff that is bad, like jihad, is is a unique doctrine. Um, but in, in Ali, the, I'm the, comfortable uh, with my claim that there's nothing good in the Quran and the Bible, mm-hmm. like more for more morality-wise, because entertainment-wise, they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess yeah. I guess we can agree on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's funny. So, yeah. no, the, the, I mean, this is yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. But, uh, you have a chapter in your book on. Um, biblical uh, influence as well and it has a quote from thomas jefferson that i wanted to read go for like, it I, like it starts off with it i find many passages of fine imagination correct morality and of the most lovely benevolence and others again of so much ignorance so much absurdity so much untruth charlatanism and imposture as to pronounce it impossible that such contradictions should have proceeded from the same being and this is thomas jefferson on the bible <laughs> now, jefferson famously also uh, created his own version of the Bible, uh, which is called Tom- the Jefferson Bible, and it's uh, you know it's it's still uh, there are people who swear their oaths on it. And what he did was he took out all elements of the supernatural and stuff he didn't like, and he uh, took a razor blade to them. And that uh, that by the way is not metaphorical. He no, he literally took a literal razor blade, razor yeah. blade, and he cut out those sections of the Bible that he thought were uh, essentially bullshit. And and that's how he arrived at the Jeff- Jefferson Bible. So, so it's, and it's actually it's slightly better than that. Um, there there was so huh, much nonsense. There's sli- there was so much nonsense that he actually cut out the good parts and pasted them into another book. And it was like, <laughs> I think like eighty pages compared to like eight hundred pages. So, right. so he really cut it down. And he said it was he said that the task was like pulling diamonds from a dunghill. Wow, so, he said that. <clears throat> He said that. Yeah, he wrote that in the letter. We have it. Okay. Those are the quotes that we gotta make go viral. So I mean, no matter all the good things he said about Christianity, <laughs> like there is nothing. This completely just destroyed it. So I don't understand. Do Christians, the Christians that are patriotic or nationalists or whatever? I don't know. I know that. I know there's they're, they're, that's different. But do they not know this? Like, are they what? How do they deal with this? That Jefferson, like one of their founding fathers, said something like, "Cut the Bible," because to to like like if we did this today, people are like call us you know bar- hateful and like barbaric, and their founding father did that. And how like do they, like when you mention so, this story, are well, they com- the author of the Declaration of Independence did that? Yeah. So yeah. how do they Not deal with this? So, so are you asking how a religious believer deals with inherent contradictions in their belief system? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking. Because I don't know the answer. I don't know I, the I, answer. I'm also going to quote Dr. Gregory House here, of the famous TV show House MD, who said that if you could reason with religious people, there would be no religious people. But 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 you have experience arguing this with people 
on yeah. the other side, right? So when you bring yes. this up to them, what is their response? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will say that it didn't happen or they'll try to shrug it off or they'll pivot to another argument immediately. Oh, um, that's their favorite thing. Like, and, and to me, you know, when you're having arguments i don't know what your experience has been debating believers on other issues but you know they don't it's really really rare for somebody to concede and change their mind on the spot in, right. in my experience at least you know but i have had people come up to me months years later in some cases um and say like wow you know you've been like right about this all the time and the more i read and learn the more right you were i actually <clears throat> at ffrf i was dealing with um an opposing counsel, an attorney on an, on a case that we were working on, and he was in Texas. And he told me at the end of this first phone call that we had, he's like, you know, I got to tell you right now, like, you are way out of line in a lot of what you believe. And it's, it's, it personally is offensive to me, and I'm not going to let it get in the way of our case. But like, I really, I really disagree with just about everything you stand for. And I was like, well, I, I guess I appreciate your honesty. Right. Uh, like, would, like, would you be interested in and reading a book that like you know says a little bit more about this and he was like yeah i will actually right. and all kind of like indignant and this started this conversation and we i kept and he came back uh after the case was over which was like a year and a half later i was like hey um you got any other books that you think i should read <laughs> nice and then like yeah and then like and by the end of it he is like you you I'm sorry, I, you were right kind of all along. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating to have these kind of conversations nice. with people. And, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't write the book for, to convince the Christian nationalists. I don't think they're going to pick up my book and all of they a sudden might. be convinced. They, will. they might, yeah. but I didn't write it for them. I wrote it for two different groups. I wrote it for the people on our side so that they can go out with these arguments mm. and they can refute this Christian nationalism wherever they see it, knock it down, not just with facts, but with better arguments that actually really bring this fight to them, put them on the defensive. Um, that's number one. And then the second is for that huge chunk of people in the middle who are starting to wake up and realize that Christian nationalism is a threat, but don't really know that much about it. And, and this should also help convince them, one, that it's a massive threat, and two, what they can do about it. So right. that's who I was writing for. I mean, if I can convince a bunch of the Christian nationalists along the way, that'd be awesome. Right. Yeah. So, so what what's your tactic when they start throwing uh, quotes? Because I I also collected a whole bunch of quotes, which I'm not going to go over from from the founding fathers. Because we from the atheist community, we always get uh, in the in the memes on Facebook posts on Twitters, we see the quotes. Uh, that suggests they were anti-Christian, right? But then when you go to follow other circles, like Christian circles, then you start noticing the same people with quotes that yeah. might suggest that they're actually a bit religious. Um, so when they throw those quotes at you, uh, how your response is, like, it doesn't really, their personal belief, it does, doesn't matter. The way, what they put on do, uh, government documents as a way to govern the country, that's how we decide what United States was founded on, not not the founding fathers' personal beliefs. Is that is that the standard response? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's pretty pretty much it. it usually, it's that's great. It doesn't matter, um, and here's why. But you also have to look. I mean, there are just tons and tons of fake, doctored, completely made up quotes out hmm. there, uh, especially on the Christian nationalist side of things. Hmm. I mean, I mean, probably just, on our side as well, though. 
there are there are a few on our side. Um, there's one that's really popular. Um, I would have to go back and find it. Um, I don't I don't recall it off the, t- the top of my head, but um, there are f- def- certainly a few quotes that are floating around on our side. Some of them, one of them, once like ten years ago, even made it up on a billboard, uh, and that was so that was pretty embarrassing for that group, not the group I work for. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, it, you can also have a lot of fun undermining that. So Hobby Lobby, which is this huge uh, company that just imports you know cheap crap from China and sells it at uh, huge markups to American consumers and also believes they are a Christian ministry runs an ad every 4th of July where they have all these different quotes from the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. And I, I've spent a couple years debunking those. And if you go through them, it turns out, I mean, most of them are at, at the very least very misleading and deliberately. So if mm-hmm. not omitting words to change the meaning wow. uh, so it, it's pretty it, it's a pretty common tactic on the other side but it's best i found that it's best not to get pulled into a quote war um <laughs> it's it's far better to say yeah that doesn't matter and here are the reasons why right and yeah. how, what would you list and here's the reason why because especially because the what they put on how they govern is how you decide. Like yeah, because the founders drafted a godless constitution that right. separates state and church. Right. So whatever it was, their whatever their personal beliefs were, and if they personally believed that there was a god and his name was Jesus, and they publicly chose to separate state and church, that shows even more that we should have a separation of state and church because they were these. If they are, if the Christian nationalists are right, then the founders were these devout Christians. Right. And they chose to separate state and church anyway. That that's an even more powerful argument in our favor. So either way, you win. So I, I know this argument is not very. Uh, Ali, you want to go first? No, 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 no. Go ahead. I, I wanted to ask you about something else, but okay. I want to finish this. So Armin, go ahead. All right. So I um I know this argument is not very popular, but because I've seen it being used, I'm going to just mention it just to see what your response to it is. I know this is like very. But some people mention that, well, you know, look, look at our holidays, right? Mm-hmm. Easter, uh, Christmas. Um, this is, this shows that this was, I don't know, if found our culture. Sundays, our even. Yeah, Sundays, even Sundays. Sundays, where things are yeah. Closed. yeah. So, yeah. Any, yeah. Yeah, I got a whole chapter on that, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, so- I do talk. <laughs> yeah, I, I do talk about that. I mean, there's there's a big you know there's a big controversy early on in the founding of the country about whether or not Sunday should be del- delivered or excuse me mail should be delivered on Sundays because it's the Lord's Day, and wow. they basically said, uh, yeah, that should not be a factor at all because we have a separation of state and church in this country, so we're just going to go ahead and continue to deliver the mail. So, so yeah. okay, so. Get your book then. So we'll just yeah. leave that there. Right, by the way, yeah. I just saw, I know we have some other pa- patron questions. But by the way, uh, our patrons in live chat, if you want us to ask a question, make sure you tag Secular Jihadists. And I saw that we had a few. But this one we weren't tagged, but I'm just going to mention it anyways because it's really good. So on a scale of, of 0 to 10, how Christian is the U.S.? <laughs> in the sense that we're talking about zero, zero in, okay. the, in the legal constitutional sense, not at right. all. I mean, again, those... Judeo-Christian principles conflict right. with the American founding principles. It's not just that they didn't influence it. it it's that there, there's so much disagreement that you can say positively there's no way they could have influenced it. They are un-American. Right. So legally zero influenced <coughs> by, I would say, one out of ten? 
I mean, it depends. I mean, if you're talking about culture, like yeah. probably a little, probably tick it up a little higher on culture, right. um, though not so much now, no. which is part of the reason they're also pissed off. Right. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Ali, you wanted to say something, sorry. Yeah, so I wanted to, you know, because we were talking about how Jefferson, uh, you know, essentially um, amputated or circumcised, whatever you wanted, the Bible. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I, I, I don't think I saw this in your book, but tell me if you've heard of it. Um, he wrote a dissertation, I think when he was very young, called A Dissertation on Liberty and Necessary and, and Necessity, Pleasure and Pain. Um, he, he published in, it in 1725. And he argued actually at great length. It was like a philosophical dissertation where that God, the idea of an omnipotent and a benevolent God is in contradiction to notions of human free will and morality. And yeah. he basically concluded that um, Christianity or the Christianity he was raised with uh, cannot logically be a moral way to live. So he totally separated it. Mm. Um, yeah. And then he uh, even uh, he also... Uh, said that man cannot be superior to animals, even because we're equal in, in God's eyes. And he talked about suffering. I mean, there, there are a lot of things he said, but it was a, an incredibly blasphemous and a very sort of anti-Christian dissertation. Um, so I, I just wanted to know if you if you knew about that or if you were familiar with it. I remember coming across it briefly in in researching the book. I didn't dive into it again because you know I didn't want to focus on. Web, the personal religious beliefs of the founders. You know, I make this analogy in in the book um, where I, the point for the other side to be right, they would have to show not only that they were Christian, that's what they have to prove, number one, but then that their Christian beliefs influenced their ideas about the government to the degree that they put those ideas into practice. And it's like it's like trying to show that the vegetable gardens the founders planted were christian or that the outhouses they built were christian right the i if the, if a person is religious that religion does not claim ownership over every single idea that they generate of course I mean, yeah and yeah. and and that is what the other side is claiming here uh, and so I, it's it's something that i didn't want to dive too much i mean i do talk a, I, do, I do talk about ben franklin's religion i talk about thomas jefferson's i talk about uh, George Washington's a little bit um, because you can't you you can't avoid it in this in this, I think, uh, yeah, this arena. Yeah, you refer to it as interesting and <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah, and yeah. I, I I agree with that. I think that it, it is interesting, but That's good. I I think it also would be powerful uh, for people to know that you know this is a dissertation that Benjamin Franklin. I mean, these are people who are actually very actively thinking about these things. Yeah, and, and there's Thomas there's Jefferson. So there's actually yeah. a story about Abe Lincoln too. Um, I oh don't yeah. Know if, I don't know if it made it into the text of the book or if it ended up in a footnote or if the footnote got cut. I don't remember right now. But and it might be an apocryphal story. We can't. I, I can't say for sure that it happened. But his uh, law partner, uh, Henry Herndon, said that when Lincoln was a really young lawyer growing up, he um, wrote a blasphemous tract that basically disproved God. And the story goes that, you know, he was sort of part of this little philosophical club in his town where they would gather at the hardware store every night and and uh, sit around the the stove and, and, you know, talk philosophy. And he was presenting this, this tract that he wrote to the group and that one of them uh, grabbed it and threw it in the fire. And they did it yeah, because they, they knew he right? was they, – yeah, they knew he was bound for higher office. And so they uh, – and, and, you know, I mean – there's only one source for it, so you don't know whether it's true or not. But uh, it's certainly fascinating to think about. 
But okay, yeah. so overall, um, I think um, the strongest argument against this whole idea uh, is what we mentioned earlier: is the gap, the gap between having Christ having many Christian countries for close to two thousand years on this earth. And not having during these during most of it, not having any countries that supports freedom and equal opportunity, and then right after the Enlightenment, then we have countries mm -hmm. that support uh, freedom and equal opportunity, and can and these people all of a sudden say like, oh, this is this Christianity. I like, yeah, you guys had a two thousand year head start, and we didn't get any of this, and now that all of a sudden Enlightenment thinkers bring this to you now you try to claim credit for it like isn't that whole gap between having christianity for this amount of time and not getting any of those any of those of values course. That, it, of yeah. course yeah. but religion excels at taking credit for things that it is not responsible for i mean right that's part and parcel to what it and i actually i tell a couple stories about that in the book and i think it's in the last chapter you know i went to the uh, a catholic wedding a while ago and I had been to one Catholic wedding previously, and I remember sitting through that wedding being like, this <clears throat> Catholic priest is mentioning God and Jesus so much more than he is the couple. Um, and that when I was at this second Catholic wedding, I actually counted. Uh, and so it was like something like 240 times that he mentioned Jesus and God and his church, and about 60 times that he mentioned the couple. And it's, you know, this is their day. They're there to get married. And you have the Catholic Church stepping in and stealing right. the glory and, you know, <clears throat> just, just taking it all from them and making it their own, making it about them. Hmm. And it's all just look at me, look at me. And I think religion really excels right. at taking credit for things that it is not responsible for. And yeah. I think that's kind of what you're talking about here. Yeah. And we, we notice with Islam as well, uh, they keep uh, take trying to take credit for you know science you know mm -hmm. for uh, now they're taking uh, claiming and taking credit for they're saying oh that um you know all this human right values all of this islam they they say the un copied it from from islam right from the quran this is we well, had these Muhammad was the first feminist muhammad right? was the first feminist and 20 years from now he'll be the first gay rights activist too. <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, but revisionist history—that's how it works. It's, it's <clears throat> we have the same experience, like with uh, Muslims. Like, yeah, all, right, you were the last countries in the world to declare slavery illegal, and all of a sudden now that slavery is illegal in your country, like, yeah, we were, we were. Islam was always well, against slavery, and like, and there are actually there are studies that back this up, and I, I cite a couple of them in the book. Um, this one professor was writing about it, and it, they they show that. It wasn't, for instance, take the abolition movement here in the United States, the, the, move, the movement to abolish slavery. That was primarily, the primary drivers of that were secular Americans. Mm. It, was, it was secularism that was pushing for abolition more than religion, and religion was getting left behind. And essentially, it was, the morality of the country was being pushed by secular values. And then religion was rushing to catch up, and then it did what we were just talking about, and now it takes credit for all of that abolition on its own. And right. and it's it's not it's not unique to that uh, particular time period. It's something that that happens over and over again. I mean, your joke, Ali, about uh, Muhammad being a gay rights activist in twenty years is probably right, not 
a joke. Like it's probably no, a prediction. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah, it's an accurate prediction, probably. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So. Uh, to to me, it's, it seems like a lot of people are always emphasizing on who did it, whether they were atheist or Christian or Muslim. And to me, it doesn't matter who did it. It matters what values are responsible for it. Like, yeah. for example, when, when, when a lot of Muslims try to get credit to Islam for the golden age of Islam, which I always try to correct them, it wasn't the golden age of Islam, it was the golden age of Arabs, because Arabs did science, poetry, and philosophy in spite of Islam, not because of Islam, right? Because they were an empire. Of course, when you become rich, then you become interested in philosophy, arts, and science, right? But yeah. nothing that these scientists did, whether they were some of them were Muslim, some of them were actually had very anti-Islamic views. But it doesn't matter because what they, the science that they did, they did none of that came from the from Quran. Not there's nothing in Islam is responsible for the science that they did. They did science because they were scientists, right? And when if Christians do some good things, like if Christians support gay rights, people are like oh look, Christians are supporting gay rights. That means Christianity is pro gay rights and like no what in christianity is like if that's if that was our standards then if i could show you a million like a million muslims that enjoy uh game of thrones then enjoying game of thrones all of a sudden becomes an islamic thing that doesn't make any sense like they're muslims are not just muslims there are many other things and influenced by other sources of ideas separate from islam many of them are enlightenment values which are becoming more popular yeah, and I have a whole I have a whole talk on this in the book too. Um, I kind of center the talk around family values to make the point, but uh, the the overall point is that that Christianity, and we could certainly expand that to religion generally, but Christianity has done a remarkable job, at least here, of convincing people that when something is good, it is Christian. Mm. Um, like we say, well, that's not very Christian of somebody when they kick their gay kid out of their house, for instance. Yeah, that's like, very Christian. Christian. But it is very Christian. <laughs> it is exactly. very Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what Jesus would have done. Right. Um, so, and and I, I go to great pains to kind of tease that out and explain that and use the Bible to, to prove yeah. that point. Right. Uh, it, it is critical. So um, I, I wanted to also move on to... Um, like I'll just spend a few minutes talking about this and then we can go to patron questions is uh, you, there's a lot of you, this book is obviously politically very relevant right now you've got the democratic primaries going on in the US um, you have uh, the religious right that is continuing to support Trump Trump is uh, his base is is pretty much is is about 42 percent it doesn't really budge from that too much um, and so two things I wanted to talk about. One is a history of when did Christianity become such a huge part of U.S. politics? Was it in response to the Soviet Union? Was it when Jimmy Carter, I know Jimmy Carter came in and he, he, he used to talk about being a Christian. That's back when Democrats uh, used to kind of uh, also, I mean, it's not just the Republicans who did it, the Democrats did it too. Um, now you're seeing a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who I really like mm. um, pretty much everything he says. And he's a good example of, uh, how his views are interesting but completely irrelevant because he doesn't seem like he's going to um he would govern on the basis of his beliefs at all but but still he's making up and this uh, argument to reclaim christianity from the republicans and the democrats can also take it so is, is that a good thing or, or a bad thing and i i guess there's a lot of questions in there but how how did it start why is religion such an important part of hmm. the u.s political process to the extent that the fastest growing demographic yeah. 
the U.S., the atheists and the nuns, right? The N O N E nuns, not the Catholic ones. That don't have those, any representation. <laughs> don't have any representation. Nobody will yeah. admit to it. There's very yeah. few of them. There's like there's a handful of them that do admit to it and that have won, but um, it's still sense. really, really. It's a political liability to be able to call yourself an agnostic or an atheist or a non, you know, non-religious person. Well, okay, so three things. Yeah, yeah it is. Three, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to limit it to just these three things. First, Max Boot wrote a really great op-ed in the Washington Post, which is, I think it was titled something like, um, it's time for an, uh, not unabashed, an unapologetic, I think was the adjective, unapologetic atheist to, to be in public office. And he's talking about it in the, the sense of the Democratic primary and saying we need an unapologetic atheist as president. So that's kind of exciting. Um, but so first, the history side of this. So religion really was not a big part of American politics until the 1830s. And I go over this history a little bit in the book. Um, and it um, there's a really great book that I that I sort of um, based a lot of my research on. Uh, Andrew Goldsworthy wrote it called, it's called America Aflame. And it's about how religion and really Christianity, Christian nationalism even, entered the political discourse in America in the run-up to the Civil War. And what it did was it, it, it divided the country further and it established what would normally have been these political principles and political ideals and political positions as articles of faith, making it impossible for the democratic republic, which runs on compromise, to function the way that it should. Um, so to to a larger extent than it has previously been <clears throat> recognized, we can say that the Civil War was a religious war, uh, which is a pretty remarkable, I think, statement. Um, so you can really tie it back back to that. Um, it's certainly not back to the American founding. Um, you know, there's this, <clears throat> excuse me, really popular argument that Christian nationalists make, and you'll hear Trump make it all the time, that Ben Franklin proposed prayer at the Constitutional Convention, right. you know, when they were getting so, together drafting this prayer. Um excuse me, when they were getting together, drafting the Constitution. And that's kind of true. Uh, what they never tell you is that the in Franklin's own handwriting, he put at the bottom of the page on his notes for the convention from that day, the convention, except for three or four persons, found the prayers unnecessary. They didn't even vote on the measure. Um, and there, there, there's some hypothesis uh, that Franklin may have even been making a, a joke when he said that, basically like, guys, we're going to have to appeal to foreign aid here if you don't get your shit together and, and sort this out. Hmm. Um, so this the kind of the <clears throat> the second answer to your question um, is I don't think it's a good thing. I think I think and I think the I don't think religion in politics is a good thing. I think it, our government and religion are separate and they should be and I fight for that every day. <clears throat> but whether or not religion and politics are separate is a is a slightly different issue. Yeah. Um, but I still think it right because you're if you Pete Buttigieg might be a good example. Like clearly his religion influences some of his is going to influence some of his policy decisions, and I would like to see that not happen. I mean, I uh, I think the ideal probably outlook for a politician would be something like the Rawlsian veil of ignorance is a great way to kind of decide things. Um, but you know that's sort of me really getting deep into the political philosophy, which we don't need to do. Um, I think overall, there's way too much religion in politics in the United States. And yeah. <clears throat> there's actually a really interesting 
a kind of economic point here that both James Madison and Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, which was published the same year America declared independence, they both kind of essentially say that in a country that would dis that it disestablishes church, you will actually have more religious people because there's this wild marketplace of religious people fighting for adherence, right? You can't just be a clergy who expect the way that the uh, church, the Anglican church was where they expect to get uh, taxpayer money right. and they expect people to come to the church every year because, or every weekend because they are the only game in town. Yeah. Performance, you try to performance do that, doesn't matter. Exactly. And right. if you try to do that in America, um, you would, you would lose your congregation in a couple of weeks and you'd, right. you'd be out of money. So they so actually, the efficiency of capitalism saved the church. Kind of, yeah, and and, and it, it's sort of you know it's the idea that having a disestablished church actually makes people more religious is sort of counterintuitive, um, but it it also it, when you think it through it kind of actually makes more sense, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. The the Buddhist thing is, I like I and this is a problem. Like I really like him, but what he is doing is you know what we were talking about earlier um, that you know God created me as a gay man or you know. Yeah. I, his uh for his pro-choice piece and we had david silverman here on the podcast like a long time ago and he said one of the things he said is like nobody really has a god who disagrees with him you know <laughs> yeah if you like guns you're gonna say jesus loved guns if you if you believe in pro-choice you'll be like well jesus was pro-choice well, muhammad pro muhammad believed muhammad like i don't want to beat my wife but god says so maybe muhammad yeah is I, I, I don't know if he ever said that <laughs> No, I doubt it. You know. Maybe he but, maybe he just blames it on God. Maybe that's what he yeah. wanted, but he just gives it. Yeah, you could, but I mean, I I think that you know that that's that might be even more dangerous to go around and say that okay, these are all the liberal secular values I have, and I have them because I'm a Christian. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So that adds to the whole myth that you know that well, the, and and you're turning it into a religious fight. You're turning it into okay, well, what does the Bible actually say on the issue? What does the yeah. Bible? say about homosexuality and that is not a fight that liberals are gonna win ever right. no. so yeah, there's no there's no way it's it's <clears> like <throat> the it's like the sort of the moderate uh, islamic apologists who go up against the fundamentalists and the fundamentalists yeah. just quote right from the quran right. and the hadith whereas the, the apologists are quoting like professors from al-azhar university and like isis isn't quoting professors from the you know university of toronto or you know some university in berlin i mean they're quoting the quran and hadith i mean this is that's the thing with christian fundamentalists as well wait right? so so is your just to clarify what you just said earlier do you think like when a politician says you know my policy decision per, is personally influenced by my um my my political decisions is influenced by my christian values do you think that that should be illegal. That should. What do you? What's the? Uh, what do you think? I don't. I don't necessarily think that violates the separation of state and church. It depends on. It certainly. It would depend more on how they put it into practice. Um, that that give, would be this. Can you give an example of what? Question. An ex one example where it would be okay, and one example that would be crossing the line. Yeah. Um, so let's take the example of uh, Bible class in public schools. These are in the news uh, a lot now because uh, there's a group called Project Blitz that's been pushing for Bible classes in the public schools. So let's say that you are you are on a school board in some place and you're considering one of these classes. Um, <clears throat> if you are a Christian and believe devoutly that Jesus is the answer and you want everybody to come to Jesus and you incorporate that into your Bible class. Oh, let's step back and say that uh, 
courts in the United States have said that generally classes about religion are okay. Um, so if you teach about religion, that's fine. You can't preach religion as public mm-hmm. truth or as uh, accepted truth. Right. So you, you can educate but not indoctrinate. Right. Um, so so if, if that uh, school board member says, yes, and we need to teach all these kids that Jesus is the way, the light, and only through him are they ever going to be saved, that would certainly cross the line. Um, if they, they said, you know, I, I believe this and I think it's important for everybody to know this, but also it's important for them to know what else is out there uh, and we're going to have a fair class that complies with the law, then you're kind of in a, in a different territory. I mean, and there are, there are certainly examples that you could give kind of all across the spectrum on on any one of these things um it really would depend on how they implement it okay but so as you're saying if the source of the decision is religious as long as the effect doesn't cross this this not not necessarily and and to remember i i still i still do think that if that the source of a policy proposal or a policy, not even proposal, just a policy idea being religious is fundamentally flawed anyway, because right. then how do you even talk about that in anything other than religious terms? If you think slavery is okay because the Bible says so, how do we have a debate about that that is in any way rational yeah, but, or but, reasoned? You don't, you end up with a civil war. Right. But and we understand the immorality, you know, the fact that it doesn't make any logical sense, but le- legally, Legally, mm-hmm. if somebody says, "I'm making this decision because of my religious convictions," yeah. but what they if what they're doing is is not crossing any legal lines, should that be legal? Yeah. So it it gets into <clears throat> how deep do you guys want to get into the weeds on U.S. <laughs> no, constitutional let's, let's do it. law? Okay. Okay. Um, right now, this could this could change um, in a month or two even um right now the central questions that you ask uh when you're looking at whether or not a government action violates the separation of state and church is does it have a religious purpose does it have an effect that either inhibits or advances religion and or does it entangle the government with religion and if you violate any one of those three things then that action is unconstitutional. So the one that we're kind of talking about is the purpose inquiry. Does it have a religious purpose? Um, and I think if it's if it is primarily and exclusively motivated by religion, that is could be enough of a reason to strike it down. The harder question then becomes, well, how do you prove that? And if we're talking about a school board that has, say, seven members, mm. what if one guy thinks that and the other six are normal people who mm. don't want to use the machinery of the state to impose their religion on other people's kids? You know, then where are you? Um, so but the, yes, so you, it, that alone, that standing alone could be, could be enough to, for that law to be unconstitutional. Yeah. So, how, so you just have to concerned. misrepresent the purpose. Yes, and that happens all the time. It's a very, very popular tactic here. Okay. How vulnerable <laughs> is... Um, the separation of church and state right now, and you have you have not only you have these uh, you have Gorsuch and you've got this guy um, Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court yeah. now. There's like a, a it could be gone in a couple of weeks. Well, I mean, no, yeah, like that... literally, literally, it could be gone in a couple of weeks. What? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, the Supreme Court has a case before it right now. Um, there are justices, a number of justices on the Supreme Court who have said specifically that. 
the Kavanaugh included. The Kavanaugh that, said, yeah. That the wall of separation is a bad metaphor based on bad history, oh. and it should be overturned. Um, and if, if they do that, what they will... The scary version is they will move to something um, which would require us to, instead of proving one of those three things, purpose, uh, effect, entanglement that we just talked about, all they would, you would have to prove that the government was coercing somebody into religion in some way, shape, or form. Um, you, so you'd have to prove coercion. Um, and and that, that bar is incredibly, incredibly high. And trying to do that... Um, I mean, it's, Wait, it's so how are you going to... So does that mean if that happens, you guys cannot win cases against the government any, as easily as you used to, right? We are, yeah, we are right now, since 2016, we are 14 and 3 in court. And if that happens, those numbers could easily flip. Do you think it will, though? Is it in the few weeks when the Supreme Court hears it? Is it... It's. Is it, I mean, it's a, it's, le, it's a legit possibility. I don't know. I don't know how likely it is. Um, I'm I'm a little doom and gloom on that front right now. Right. Um, I mean, it will certainly. Well, we yeah, would never, uh, that's terrifying. That's, that's we would, nev we would never stop scary. fighting. Okay. Um, we, and, and I think, but this this court has proven very very hostile. You know, there's sort of this. Um, I won't call it conventional wisdom. There's sort of this idea floating around out there that since Kavanaugh was confirmed to the court, uh, and for everybody who doesn't remember, this is the guy who was accused of assaulting this woman and it was this massive show before right. the Senate. Um, she testified, he lost it and talked about beer the whole time. And, uh, <laughs> He's crying and like a little bitch. <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, unreal. The, and, no, that's not fair. The, yeah. Okay. No, it, it's totally fair. We're not talking about being fair. Anyway, go on. Right. But he I mean, was. No, no, the he rest, of, the rest, sad. like he's asshole for other reasons, but go on. Well, yeah, so was crying like a little. The, I mean, the Supreme Court like suffered. It, it lost. I don't think it had that much moral authority to begin with, but it, it took a serious blow to its moral authority. So there's this idea floating around that they're not going to do anything really controversial mm. for a while until their reputation recovers. Um, I think that's nonsense, and I think that it that logic flips when you're talking about religion, uh, because this court is so far out there on these issues. They are Christian nationalists, a few of them, right. that they will see striking down separation of state and church as not controversial, as writing this deep wrong why, that's existed why, for a long time. Why is there, because this is, this is what the problem is. And this is, you know, we, we talk about the left and the issues of the left because I, I, I'm from the left. I'm a liberal. <laughs> so this is one thing that frustrates me is that uh, most people who go to law school, Right in the United States are not conservatives, but the conservatives are very good at finding I the conservative so, yeah. voices there, yeah. lapping them up. And it's not just the Supreme Court. I mean, there have been cool. an incredible amount of conservative appointments to courts. Like while Trump has been doing, the, yep. distracting everybody with his Twitter circus, right. you know, behind the scenes, um, the Republican majority Congress and and the Senate have been confirming. Like judges across the land that are a threat to the separation this, of church and state, and this is why our side, our side was so wrong to make fun of Christians for voting for Trump because our side kept making fun of Christians. Like, how could you vote for Trump? This guy is doesn't represent anything you believe in. But they voted for Trump strategically, and they got everything they wanted and more. Like they have won this game. They, ha they, we are the losers right now in the United States, as, uh, and they are the winners. They have been strategic. No, I mean, 
Yeah. Yep. I don't know how strategic that decision was on their part. I think there was other things wrapped up in it, but they yeah. are 100% better at playing politics than right. our side is. They absolutely they, are. Because our side they, is just tweeting. They're yeah. just tweeting. Like, yeah, go on. No, I mean, they, they, they treat it like a game that you can cheat at. That principles are... Principles are good when you're in the minority, but when you're in the majority, you ram through whatever you want to ram through. You hold a Supreme Court seat open. You delay as many uh, judges from taking the bench uh, as you possibly can. Uh, and they are just, they are better at at politics than liberals are. There's there's no doubt about it. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean that is why this is actually very connected uh, to the you know your book, all the arguments that you make. It's because of this reason that I think that it's so important. The 2020 election is so important, and your book is so important to it. Um, that yeah, if if something doesn't happen soon, I mean, there is a genuine threat to. I re- and I really do agree with that. I believe it. I I think th- this is a critical fight, and the goal of this book is to arm people for the coming arguments and fights that they're going to have to have about yeah. the, these issues and i mean i i genuinely don't care if people buy the book but i really want everybody to read the book um you know if uh-huh. you would go to your public library and get it like it, it you need to understand the arguments that are in it and you need to be able to go on the offensive against these christian nationalists because they are certainly gunning for your rights. I mean, hands down, it's happening. By the way, so. can I just make one last point before you go to Patreon questions? Sure. Um, I, I do think that th- this loss in the United States, people think it's just U.S. politics, but this is going to have, uh, this has already had a huge global effect. And if oh, pe- huge. If, and if you lose uh, more, it will, it will continue to be a loss for... Uh, other secular activists on a global on a global scale, and just to give you an example, um, I follow a lot of uh, Iranian secularists, and I follow what they say on Twitter and on social media in Persian, and a lot of a lot of secularists they try to use other secular countries as and the results they have um, as a role model, as a way to make their arguments in, in Islamic countries to show like, look how this is how it's done here. And the, and when secularism loses in countries like United States, the anti-secularists in these non-secular countries use that as a point against the secularists. They look at your, so uh, look at your mass. They call it your masters. Your masters in the United States. Look at how much. Look, they have prayers in Congress. Like yeah. you think this. You think you think United States is. You guys love secularism, and you keep pointing to France, and you keep pointing to the United States. But look, their their president Trump said this. The Congress did that. Look, they passed a law that that you know this religious law in the United States. So every time, any any religious laws or any politician says something religious in countries that are supposed to be secular, the anti-secularist activists in Islamic countries or in non-secular countries use that against the secularists to show that, you know, secularism is a myth. So I'm j- doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm just saying these countries where secularism is supposed to win is supposed to provide hope and a goal and a roadmap to the countries that don't have secularism. And if we lose these countries that do have secularism, or if, if secularism is weakened in these countries, it does have a global impact. 
Yeah. Right. You, ought to, you well certainly said. ought to make that into an op-ed if the Supreme Court does what, what we were talking about. You really ought to. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be very powerful. Okay. That's uh, – you just uh, – <laughs> Yeah, you just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm going to move on to... Oh, um, uh, uh, if anybody wants to join the live chat that we... Right now, everybody in our live chat is our, is our, our patrons. So for people that are listening to this later, if you guys want to come into the live chat and join us live when we have these discussions, consider becoming a patron. It really helps to support this show and continue what we're doing. And thank you to everybody right now that is a patron. But go on, Ali. Ask your patron questions. Yeah, first <laughs> we have to, I just saw this tweet in response to when I announced that this uh, we were talking to you. <laughs> this guy wrote, um, "He's not wrong. It was clearly founded as a white nation, not a Christian nation." Ooh. So yeah. there you go. That's the topic of your next book. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go ahead and pass on that one. The U.S. was a white nation. Okay. Right. Anyway, um, yeah, we. This is these are debatable. I mean, I heard, uh, I saw a video of Brian Cox. You know, the great physicist who worked yeah. at CERN. Um, actually explaining why the Earth cannot be flat. I mean, this is what we're kind of doing. So we have to talk about these things. Apparently, to seriously address the, uh, uh, you know, talk about why the U.S. is not a white nation wasn't based on that. Anyway, huh, okay. Uh, so first of all, Mars and Mike have both just purchased your book. Well, thank said, you. Pre-ordered. Uh, really looking forward to this read. Um, uh, Mike is saying, uh, well, he quoted his confirmation, you know, the founding myth, why Christian nationalism is un-American, will be auto-delivered wirelessly to your Kindle. Awesome. Um, Thank you. So there there you go. Yeah. Um, so Mike is asking, how many of the founding fathers were Christians? So I know this is, again, interesting. Yeah. Relevant. And it's a hard number, too. I mean, even if you want to, even defining who was a founding father is actually a, a pretty hard thing to hmm. i mean who, who do you count do you count people who signed the declaration of independence or people who signed the u.s constitution uh, i mean there were 11 years between those documents and only six men signed both um is it only those six men uh, do you count the people who were not instrumental in the founding documents but who clearly had a massive impact on the population and the psychology and the ideas of the population like like thomas Paine would be one and i think he should be counted among the the founders but um didn't really take part in any of the shaping of the national government um or people like aaron burr who did take uh, part in the shaping of the national government um but didn't really have any impact at all uh, yeah. so you know i mean it it, it even trying to get to who is a founder is a, is itself a big question. I mean, to me, the central the central point when you're when you're trying to think about who the founders were and whether or not they were religious is there is certainly there is a tie between orthodoxy and excuse me, heterodoxy and rebellion. People who are orthodox believers do not rebel against their king and fight back. It, it's just, it's not something that happens. And there's actually, there's a lot of data to back this up. You have to be an unorthodox thinker in more ways than one to be somebody who would even consider uh, revolting uh, and fighting a war for independence against uh, King George III. And if you look at kind of the primary lights, like George Washington was almost certainly not a Christian, uh, and there are there are a lot of indicators of that. Oh. Um, the the fact that he didn't have 
any religious service. He was on his deathbed for quite a while. Uh, and <clears throat> there was never, he never asked for last rites or uh, religious consolation of any kind, uh, which he could have done and would have done had he been a believer. Uh, when he went to church, he didn't take communion. Uh, he didn't reference Jesus in any of his personal letters. He did talk about, um, you know, uh, the guiding hand of providence and things like that from time to time, but often it seemed to be in more poetic terms. Um, Jefferson, you know, I don't, I think it's pretty, he himself said that he was a Christian in the sense that he followed the pure morals of Jesus, um, but he's not what anybody would consider a Christian today. He took a razor to the Bible. Yeah. Um, but then again, you have serious scholars who say he said he was a Christian, so he is. Yeah. <clears throat> so, well, I mean, his uh, his campaign at that point didn't want to paint him. In the 1800 uh, campaign against oh, yeah. him, and I actually wrote about this in my book as well. Yeah. Um, the the whole Jefferson thing uh, is uh, they they called him a quote howling atheist Th that was that was their argument against him. Now yeah, and of course I think the same people the descendants of those same people would like to claim him as a Christian. So I'm I'm sure that's true. So <clears throat> I mean it 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 just depends. I think but I think by and large there are a lot of indicators that they were they are certainly not the Jesus rose from the dead and saved us type of Christians that you think about today. I think we can say that the vast majority of them were with great confidence. Um, but you, we do have to be, and there's a big, I have a big disclaimer in the front of the book about this. Like the founders were not united on anything for the most part with the possible exception of the separation of state and church, which really most of them were on board for hmm. like really these guys disagreed on just about everything. <laughs> we speak of them as the founding fathers because it's convenient and it's politically powerful to do so, okay. but really they didn't get along on, I mean, you name it. And there were people, prominent people on both sides of almost every one of those issues. Well, that, that may have a lot to do with the fact that, uh, like, as you said, free thought, yeah, is the one sort of unifying um, value, yeah, in the, in the foundation of the U.S. So. Yeah, and certainly some of them didn't behave like uh, Christians. You know, uh, my, my one of my favorite founders is one of the the least known a guy named Governor Morris, who he actually wrote the final draft of the Constitution. He was the penman of the Constitution. He wrote the words "We the People," uh, and he <laughs> he had sex with uh, a married woman in a convent when he was in Paris, uh, acting as our our foreign minister. He lost a leg in a carriage accident. He was just this this bon vivant that like you would not think of as as a good Christian man. It was pre it's a pretty amazing character. I highlight him in the book because he's just a fun, interesting guy. Right. Yeah, and it, we should also mention that Jefferson was a slave owner who had, yeah. uh, according to DNA, um, now seen in the in the late 1990s, I think five or six children with Sally Hemings, who was, well, when he was in his 40s, I think she was 14. So, yeah, and then ensla enslaved the kids too. I mean, and that's like a really hard thing to reconcile how he it could is. write how he could write these these amazing passages about liberty and then turn around and just betray them in his personal life so but this is the thoroughly. great thing about not having uh, prophets right because yeah. we could tell look at people and we're like okay yeah that's what you did there is fucked up but what you wrote here makes sense <laughs> what you wrote here makes sense right yeah so you, we you don't can have judge to... them according to the context of their time no, right. we don't have to judge them at all. We could, we could even the context for whatever time. We could be like, uh, objectively, you were, you were a dick. It was wrong, but, yeah. But yeah. what you wrote here is pretty good, right? Like, I don't have to celebrate you one hundred percent, like, a, like what you do with a prophet to be able no to. No infallibility. Hmm. 
like they're not infallible, right? Yeah, yeah. Today exactly. Defending his, his exactly. Labor. I don't have to exactly. when I when I take a good message from a from an author or a thinker, that doesn't mean I'm endorsing them 100 percent because that's yeah. that's a religious way of thinking about people. Yeah, right. and and guys, can we hang on for one sec? I gotta get a refill on water, or I'm gonna start croaking. Yeah, yeah do it. Or, <laughs> right, hang on, hang on one yeah, second. No. Yeah, that's good. So I'm gonna. Yeah, how I'm many patron questions do we have? Yeah, collect all the. We have questions. we have a few. I, we've got time. I think this is gonna be fun. There's some fun ones. You know, so. by uh, by everything is asking any idea. It we can answer this right now because he's asking any uh -huh. idea if it will be out as an audiobook, and we. We already, I already asked this because I, I wanted to know as well. Uh -huh. Because I listen to audiobooks on double speed, I get a lot of books uh, more. Oh, no, it, it, it's fin I finish a lot more books this way than I used to, right? So I was very curious about that. And he said he doesn't know it's up to his, they bought the rights to the audio. Oh, no, no, it, it is coming down. It, it is coming out. Yeah, but he audiobook. doesn't know we when. Don't know when. Yeah, we yeah. don't know when. That's the most. Yeah, but it yeah. will come out as an audiobook. Yeah, chances are it'll be fairly soon. I mean, I know that Tantor is doing his uh, audiobook, which means that. Oh. Uh, they're they're very very quick. They did my audiobook too, so right. um, it's it'll it'll be out. It's not going to be that long. Okay. Uh, so, but but definitely get it, guys. I mean, like, so I yeah, I was I had the honor of having an advanced copy, and I, I was able to. Uh, yeah, I'm so I, jealous. You I came, wrote a blurb as well. You came to huh? the show a lot more prepared than I have because you managed. You got the book in advance, and I didn't. Well, because read it. you don't have the book. Yeah. I know. I know. But so. But do. it's good. One of us was familiar with it. The other one wasn't. So yeah. anyway, Andrew's back. So I'm going to go on to the next question. Um, Mars is saying it's uh, stated that there were Christians against slavery during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I think Michael Shermer stated that they were in the raw minority, though. Is there any yeah. truth to this? Yeah, I think that that's that's reasonably accurate. And I, you know, I do. And this is something that I talk about more in depth on in the book. Right. Um they certainly had the worst side of the theological argument, as we pointed out, and they were reacting primarily to secular values being put into practice. Religion was trying to catch up uh, right. to those those secular abolition movements. Right, so, but, but even okay, right now we're saying what, uh, the Christians that were against slavery they were minority, but even if they were the majority, it wouldn't make it Christian, right? Yeah. Course, because yeah. what Christians do and what Christianity teaches are two separate things. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There you go. Yeah. So, um, so here are probably my two favorite questions on this podcast ever. So, John awesome. Camacho and Bogie Boglarovics—they're talking about the technical aspect of Jefferson taking a razor to the Bible. They're yeah. concerned about all the stuff that he cut out that was on the other side of the page. So, yeah. John, John is asking, <laughs> he cut out stuff on the other side of the page, and Bogie is asking, "Was that a single-side page Bible?" And I—I I think I know the answer to this. He basically cut out parts that he liked, and uh, or parts—I um, don't know if it was liked or not. He had eight Bibles. That's the answer. Oh, huh? is that the real he answer? Had, he, yeah, the real answer is he had eight Bibles. He had two in English, two in Greek, two in Latin, and uh, I think two in French. Don't so, quote me on that last one. So, so he had two Bibles in each of four languages so that he could cut um, from, if he needed to get the side that he had already cut out, he could use the second Bible and do it. And then you're right, Ali, he, he pasted them in into a separate book um and then they were there was translations four separate translations of the bible side by side that he created and actually 
I know we're like talking about my book, but one of the coolest books I own is the Smithsonian put out a um, a, a a book that is that, but it's pictures of Jefferson's. So it's it's like high res scans. They so have the whole an book online is, article on it too. Yeah, and you can see, yeah. but you can get you can get the book too. And they they've had it at the Natural History Museum. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not, but I go check it out whenever I'm in DC. Wait, it's it's must, really cool. He must have been very good at arts and crafts. I would that that looks like a, <laughs> that's a huge. I mean, this was the only way to do it. Like when they used to record, right. you can just take like you know how we edit podcasts now, like cutting a sound thing, just dragging it over to another thing. At right. that point, you literally had to cut the physical tape and then use glue. tape to like glue it together so you wouldn't miss a beat when you're editing music and editing right. film. This is a uh, how quickly we forget. Yeah. <laughs> Ar- Armin is uh, Armin is, is actually you're pretty young too. Someone actually mentioned that they said that you know Andrew looks very young. This mentioned so. this reminds me of kindergarten, Thanks. like when you just had to stick things together, make your shapes. Yeah, the glue stick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Glue stick. hey, listen, yeah. we were doing that. I'm old enough. I was doing that well into my twenties. Oh. <laughs> you guys are kids. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so so moving on. Um, uh, yeah, we already asked about the one to ten, the zero to ten. How Christian is the U.S. But by uh, by everything is asking um, uh, the religious by as in nun. Bi, not B, uh, U- yeah, B-I. Okay. B-I. Um, so uh, they're asking uh, the religious nuns are shooting up in numbers, right? So, yeah. what is the latest on this? The the religious nuns again, the N O N E S, the people who mm-hmm. are not religiously affiliated in the United States. Um, do you know off the top of your head what yeah. numbers? Yeah. yeah, so the the latest data shows that we just crested 23%, which actually put us in front of evangelicals as a group and in front of Catholics as a group. So we are now officially the largest uh, religious group in the country, even though we're the yeah. non-religious. But I think um, this is giving us false hope because we're not very organized, right? Like we True. don't do much much about it. We're just like no, we look the at numbers the, numbers. Are the numbers. Yeah, but numbers are the numbers, and we're just looking at it grow. And like we're just happy that we're there's so many of us now. But we don't. We're not active. Like we're not. We're... I think. I think. I mean. I think there is a massive push to change that. Uh, and I've written. I wrote about that after the 2018 election, uh, and how we're starting to see a more solid political nugget that the rest of the nuns can congeal around. But I will tell you, like being a lawyer who practices this, that we are going to win this fight with demographics, Mm. especially as we were talking about with the way the courts are going. Uh, And that is where our our focus kind of really needs to be. Uh, It's one of the reasons I wrote the book because I want, I want people to, to be able to go out all the the 23% of us to go out and, and fight back against these other 22%. Um, so, I mean, anyway. Do you think can, it's useful to, um, the, in terms of language, to use terms like religiously unaffiliated or no. use terms like secular? Or do you think atheist. because um, the people, well, the people who self-identify as atheists, we're talking about political organization here, Armin. Yeah. The people who identify as atheists is actually a much, much smaller percentage than the overall none. So it is, what, but it's still actually, it's still actually, and these numbers are from 2014 that I'm about to cite, but there are still more atheists and agnostics than there are Hindus, Jews, Buddhists, and Muslim, Muslims oh, yeah. and Jehovah's Witnesses combined. Combined, that's right. But um, we're, we're so, talking yeah. about being the largest demographic, right? Religious demographic. <laughs> yeah. So in that sense, sure. I'm not saying that, you know, totally axe the atheist movement or anything, but for the purposes of broadening, yeah. is it worth it to have a sort of a connective movement that uh, that is more 
yeah, I mean, I think no. we should, I think I think all those different movements should happen. Armin, I don't think you're wrong trying to push people into using the term atheism, especially. And and there's actually even good data to back that up. I don't know if you read the the study out of the University of Kentucky from I want to say maybe 2017 or 16, where they instead of asking people how they self-identified, they asked them questions and then assigned them an identification. And if you do that, it it looks closer to 26 percent of the country are actually atheists. Right. Yeah, but um, but that's a problem. Like it's a, yeah. like there are a lot of people. If you ask the majority of people, if you ask them, do you believe in all the tenets of feminism? Do you believe in equal opportunity? Do you believe in equal rights? Do you believe in equal economic, political, social opportunity? All that they will say yes. So they are all feminists. But then if you ask them, are you a are feminist? You a feminist? Yeah. The majority of them nowadays will say no. So when you actually go out and have a political campaign where you want to resonate with the masses, then do you use the language that they prefer and that is more likely to get them involved? Or do you use the language that you are trying to normalize, which is, I, I completely agree that we should. I agree with Armin on this. But I, I it's just a, a question as to whether, you know, there should be, we can do both. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, and I think that is the answer. I think you need people doing both. Obviously, you can't really do both in one campaign. I guess, I mean, you you could try, but it would that would probably come off. No, not uh, not in one campaign. Of yeah, course, you can do both, but I, we're trying to steal people from that campaign and bring them into our campaign. But I think that you, I think you, I think you do need people doing both. I think you need yeah. people bring. Yeah. But there's a lot. But there's already a lot of people doing that, and not enough people doing yeah. what we are doing. And so we need more people to switch to switch yeah. to our side. And I just I, feel like the, I just have to mention that it's not about numbers, and it's not about what's hated. I mean, <coughs> think of, okay, look at look at the Jewish community in Europe and in Asia, uh, right before World War One and throughout World War One and World War Two. They were one of the most hated groups in Europe, right, and the Middle East, and they did not have the numbers. They did not have. They were. They were. They had much less percentage than we ever had, and they were hated. Okay, um, and they got. To, they. They. They got a country. Okay, like that's how that they got together. They become active. They looked after each other. They didn't. They. They did yeah, not just become. Armed, they did not just fight back. Of them were killed there's a that's no a before that the zionist movement was before but israel I, I know but what i'm talking about is i'm talking about there's a short-term right. uh, campaign and there's a long-term campaign sorry there's the last thing i'll say about this i don't want to get too into this but the short-term campaign considering the <laughs> urgency of what you're saying with the wall of separation being at risk like the short-term campaign would be something that is just about the religiously unaffiliated where everybody who can relate to that even people who are opposed to organized religion, but you know, can sympathize with the secularism, can come into it. And then you have a long-term campaign that really is about normalizing atheism, and that's fine. But I just that's feel like it's a much more acute thing, and for that, messaging is very important. That's right. my my take on it. But anyway, right. I'm well, just saying that more, other people have done much more than we have with less numbers, so we have no excuses. But listen, yeah, okay. well, and but I think one of the things that we have that we really need to do, and I know a lot of the secular groups are working on this, is uh, on the voting side of things. Yes, that's, that's really where it needs. That's really where it needs to happen. That's right. where the power is. So, right, yeah, okay. like the the online people that you that are the loudest, that the millennials who are sort of like more leftist, they don't come out and vote. The older Democrats, yeah. like the Biden people and yeah. minority Democrats, Black and Hispanic Democrats, are not on Twitter. 
Yeah. They're the ones who turn up to vote. They show up to vote. Yeah. Uh, That's the only anyway. voice you really have. You got to use it. Yep. So, um, okay. So next question again from bogey. And yeah, this is something that, uh, I'm curious about too. When will Roe v. Wade be overturned late this year or a little <laughs> bit later? It'll be chipped away at for the next two, three, four years, and it'll probably be overturned about four years yeah, away. Uh, are you sure? Yeah, I, I, I thought it would be sooner because I, th- I mean, it, it could be. There's nothing stopping it. Um, so I happen to uh, Jeffrey Stone is a professor at the University of Chicago who wrote a book called Sex and the Constitution. And uh, Liz Cavell, another attorney at FFRF, and myself interviewed Professor Stone for uh, Free Thought Matters, the FFRF TV show. And we talked with him pretty extensively about this. He's kind of one of the leading experts in the history of the courts and sex, uh, contraception, abortion in the nation. And his prediction is they will chip away at it for the next two or three or four years, and then they will overturn it probably on the 50th anniversary, which is about four years away. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just stealing that as my prediction because he know he really knows what he's talking about and yeah. it made me sound smart. So Yeah, I just think <laughs> the, the reason that people are saying this, by the way, is that they're uh, five conservative, like hardcore conservative yeah. Supreme Court justices right yeah. now. So all you need is a challenge. You need some yeah. kind of challenge to well, go to the Supreme it, Court. But it does, there's no way. It does go back to a little bit of what I was talking about before where there's yeah. this theory, conventional wisdom, that the Supreme Court is going to try not to do anything too crazy because they really lost a lot of their moral authority. And if they if they go too far off the deep end, the theory is that Justice Chief Justice Roberts, Roberts is not going to let them do too much. But, but honestly, I don't think there's much really any data to back that up with the exception of the one data point on the Obamacare decision that he made saying that it was a tax, which was a reasonable decision. I think Mars asked just a relevant question to what you were just saying at the end. You might want to skip cool. to that right now. Mars, oh, a relevant, uh, where he said, there's a, where he says unrelated topic. No, no, there's yeah. not relevant to this. Uh, there's a conservative majority on the court, but it's chief mm-hmm. justice, uh, Roberts, a moderate, like he's saying, yeah, so no, he's I mean, not a moderate, yeah. no, he's he's not a moderate at all. And um, if you look at his history of decisions, there's nothing moderate in there, um, with the exception of the Obamacare decision um, that he joined. And everybody thinks of that, and it kind of shifted this view. And I think a lot of people want him to be this moderate that he is not. But, um, and the real question is, does he care about the court more as an institution? Um, because yeah. he's the chief justice, and I don't think he does, and I don't think we've seen. We have we have no reason to to think so. That. I I disagree with that a little bit. I I think that um, I don't think we've seen the evidence that he's a moderate by any means, uh, but it does seem like, and it seems he said this in interviews, and he said this behind the scenes. I know Jeffrey Tubin's reported on it as well. Yeah. Uh, that um, he is very concerned about the legacy of the court. He does not like. Uh, the idea that the court is uh, considered that there is conservative justice and liberal justice is. And he, he actually even put out a statement, which is really, really rare. Um, it was it la- I can't remember. It was last year or this year that, you know, we don't have conservative judges or liberal judges. Yeah. We just have it's Supreme Court judges. In so, reliance, something Trump said, yeah. He, he would... is so, so he does seem to be a little bit concerned about the PR, but I don't think that that is necessarily going to translate into him being the deciding vote on not overturning Roe v. Wade. And right? concerned about the PR is not the same as being genuinely concerned about the institution itself. Exactly, um, yeah. And I, there's um, a really phenomenal constitutional scholar, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, um, mm-hmm. out of University of California, 
who incidentally wrote a blurb for my book, um, who nice. he's actually given a, he gave a talk about this a couple of weeks ago about whether or not Roberts is actually going to be this moderating force and looked back at all of the decisions. And the answer is n- no, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I'll see if I can dig that up and maybe I'll put that out, I'll put that out on my Twitter or my Facebook. So people, if they're, they're interested, I'll try to do that to sometime tomorrow or the next day. It's, it's okay. so, I, I don't understand how, I mean, these judges have studied law for so many years and they're supposed to be the best of the best. And given that the understanding is that you have to put your personal beliefs aside and just judge everything objectively. How is it that these people keep voting so consistently based on their, you know, ideology, as you would expect. I mean, I don't understand. These are the people that you would expect the least, but given their history, like whatever their personal belief is, mm-hmm. you would think they would put that aside. And I mean, if you can't expect that, if you can see that the best judges in the land, their personal belief is affecting how they vote, then what do you can, what can you expect from other judges like isn't aren't these the people that they themselves know and understand and studied and preached the idea that your personal beliefs should not affect your they they do and that is certainly certainly the ethos that they try to portray um but look the, the supreme court is not the defender of civil rights that we often think of it as um i mean if you look if you look throughout history, the Supreme Court doesn't usually do the right thing until the American people are ready for it. Um, mm. There are a few ex- there are a few exceptions in our history. Um, the Warren Court, the fifteen years of the Warren Court, um, is a really good example where you had um, that was the court that gave us Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated American public schools. There's some really famous decisions that were had a massive impact. Uh, the Miranda decision where now everybody who gets arrested gets read their Miranda rights came out of that time. But I mean, really, if you want to take a, a more relevant example and an example that's more reflective of the way the court typically operates, look at gay marriage. Mm. Right. In, in this country, there were a number of challenges to gay marriage <coughs> laws and strictures um, since before the 1980s. I mean, the Supreme Court in 1983 could have decided that um, laws against homosexual acts were unconstitutional, but they upheld them on the basis of Judeo-Christian principles, incidentally. Um, Wait, did that, but, is that what they actually said? Yeah, they did say that in the, in the decision. Um, that the the, the, they, they said that these um, condemnations of... Condemnations like this have been um, seen throughout Judeo-Christian history. I but have the quote in my and, book. But that's anti-constitutional. Yeah. You you you've hit the nail on my on the head, my friend. Um, <clears throat> anyway, they, wait, they I'm, I know more. I I'm I'm not even no more. Yeah, the, well, the put you on the court. <laughs> um, and and when they they actually they overturned that decision uh, twenty four years later in Lawrence versus Texas, and they the court said, hey, we shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. Um, but when it came when it comes to gay marriage, they waited for the majority of the American public to be in favor of it before the court decided that it was a constitutional right. And and that's often the way it happens. They are not usually the driver of social change. They're rubber stamping they're facilitators, it. Facilitators, yeah. They're, they're rubber stamping it after it's already done. But that yeah. means every other judge is also, like, if they, these are the best judges, aren't they? Like, these are, they had a no. huge career. I mean, 
No? They're the, like they're they the have, selected ones. I know, but they yeah. have, even before they got in the Supreme Court, they must have had, like, something, a good career to be able to get yeah. in a position. Yeah. I mean, so but... That's not the same my, as my, my, Yeah, okay, but some of the best. My, my hope in the entire... <laughs> every other judge is, like, I'm skeptical about every judge now because of this. Because I'm, like, be. because I'm thinking, like, the whole legal system, like, the per- people's lawyers and judges, they're supposed to look at everything objectively look at the law and if you can't expect that from the highest court in the land then what the hell is happening in every other court like- that's a wonderful question and, yeah, <laughs> okay. the answer the answer is more of the same look i'll tell you right now i mean doing practicing this kind of law for a living i can tell you that right now i've never seen it like this before i mean the the christian nationalists they are emboldened in in a way that we we have never seen anything like this they are they're emboldened and they're entitled they know that they are going to win if they can just get the case to the supreme court and they are desperate to do it and it's it's i we've never seen anything like this in in the the 10 years i've been practicing this and we talked to other attorneys at the aclu au everybody's noticing it uh, and it's because of the shift in the judiciary that trump and uh, the Trump administration has been able to to force on the country. Right. So anyway, I'm going to move on because I know we're running out of time. I don't want to keep you. We need to build late. a wall between ISIS and Canada, Ali. We're going to have an immigration <laughs> problem. No. <laughs> okay. okay. Let, let me so, through first. Yeah. So um, another one from uh, Bogey. Do you consider the checks and balances system of the U.S. a fail, given how it is being breached and ignored by Trump? So. This is actually just to add on to this a little bit. I mean, it's been amazing the precedent that's being set. I mean, apparently you can be up. There's like in the Mueller report, there's all this stuff about obstruction of justice that is very, very clear. But now, now I, I guess you can do it and get away with it. Yeah. You can refuse subpoenas to Congress. You can uh, refuse to. You can use executive privilege for anything. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm not ready to declare our system fully broken yet, but it, it's being it's being it's being tested in a way that is like I mean, it's very it is being tested. I think that's I mean, it it, re- it really really is. I mean, I mean, and if you go back if you go back and read, you know, some of the, like if you go back and read the Federalist Papers, so these these were the the essays that James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and a few by John Jay that they wrote to convince uh, the citizens that they should ratify. The U.S. Constitution that they drafted at the Constitutional Convention, they talk a, a lot about what would happen if an amoral um, demagogue essentially got into the highest office in the land. Like, do we have enough checks and balances on that? And they really did rely an awful lot on um, norms and the morality of of the individuals themselves, and and. They didn't think somebody was going to be able to do what Trump did. Um, they were they were worried about it, and they they talked about it um, in, in in the Federalist Papers. I, I I think like seventy and seventy two. I'd have to go back and look. I'll try to tweet that up too. Um, but it's it's amazing, and it he really is testing it in a, but, in a but, way that we've never but, seen. But United States has experienced worse, right? Like other presidents that tested this. Sometimes and yeah. and but it but it's recovered. I mean, yeah. and, and this, the Supreme Court has been instrumental in that. We were just talking about the problems with the court, and Donald Trump's put two people on the court, yeah. um, and he put wins in twenty twenty. There's almost definitely going to be at least two more. Yeah, and I mean, and one. you know, one of the, he. I'm almost we we. If you go back and look at why he picked Kavanaugh, it's not because of his conservative 
judicial philosophy. It's because of what he said about the powers of the president and whether or not, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it it's Bar, gonna, same thing. Yeah. As attorney general. Yeah. And it's, so I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. Yeah. So I, uh, the, yeah, the thing is, like, this has happened before, Armin, but mm. it's uh, this is one of those times when there are majorities across the board. Uh, the Supreme Court is at stake. All of this stuff is sort of converging together. So even if if there is something damaging, it'll eventually recover, but it's going to take a very long time. It, so. And and at that time, there were a lot of politicians who were willing to choose country over party, and yeah. I. I, I don't see a lot of that happening right now. People and don't I, remember. I mean, I think that when I was in yeah. fourth grade and you had the Ronald Reagan Walter Mondale thing, if you look at the if you look at the Electoral College map, yeah. every state was red except for one. That was Mondale's home state. I mean people were like this whole red blue fifty fifty thing just was not a thing. I mean, um, wasn't the situation the, with Nixon worse? Well, yeah, Nixon won in 1972 against George McGovern. Exactly the same thing. He won. I know, but I'm just saying, like people when uh, some You're people talking are, about executive privilege. Yeah, but I'm just yeah. saying people are yeah. making it sound like uh, United States is broken now. But I'm just saying United States has survived worse than Trump. I'm saying we're being tested right now. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. not willing to say that we're that, and yeah. I, that's and definitely I, true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think with Nixon there was a corruption <laughs> thing, and he got caught because he had tapes. Right now, there's like a moral and a societal crisis. I mean, come well, on, the United States was experiencing a moral crisis when they were like in Vietnam for no f good reason, right? Like that was like that was a moral crisis at that time. I mean, we had the Red Square, uh, uh, the Red Scare, and uh, we had a lot of these things. Uh, that would be a separate podcast episode, yeah, okay, I think, okay, okay. and we should well, probably one, have one like that. Yeah. One yeah. quick fun fact: the presidential tradition of ending their speeches with "God Bless America." actually dates back to the Watergate scandal. Um, yeah. Nixon delivered his first address on the Watergate scandal from the Oval Office. Uh, he was the first president in that very address to end his speech with God Bless America. Yeah. Uh, and I talk about that quite a bit in the book. So Yeah, you did. Uh, I saw that. Anyway, I, I would like to... This, uh, this is one of the downsides of democracy. Not that, I mean, it's the, the least... <laughs> the least imperfect system that we have, but yeah. this is yeah. what happens when it goes to shit. And I, you know, George Carlin said that, you know, he quote, you know, people are fucking stupid. Look at the average person and see how stupid they are. And then think about the fact that 50% of people are even dumber than that. <laughs> Very yeah. condescending and elitist, I know, but yeah. I just had to throw it out there. That's yeah. not Andrew saying this, that's me. Yeah. But secretly, I hope. George Carlin. Yes, yeah, George Carlin. Who yeah. could disagree with George Carlin? Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question. Um, Mars is asking, uh, please only ask if there's time. Do we have time? Are you good with taking one more, I guess? What time is it? Yeah, I'll do one more. Yeah, that's, that's All right, cool. Yeah. So he's saying, considering how the midterms went, how much of a chance is there to unseat Trump in 2020? He said, I was certain Trump would win. Certain he would win in 2020 or certain he would win in 2016? Well, I, I think he means 2020. Okay. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely a good chance to unseat him. Um, I think a lot, I, I genuinely do think a lot of it depends on us being able to diffuse the Christian nationalist rhetoric that he deploys so adeptly now. Mm. I mean, it, it, I, and that's one of the reasons that I was so eager to get this book out before this election really, really got moving. I think it, it's critical to be able, look, their argument is that to be 
an American, you have to be a Christian, but patriotism has no religion. The Christian nationalist seeks to change that. And at its core, this really is a fight about what it means to be an American. And I don't think it's an, a fight that we can afford to lose. Um, and, and that's the fight that they, that they are having. And if we don't engage, if we don't engage on it, um, we're definitely going to lose. So I, that's, it, I, to me, that is, that's the kind of central question about whether or not Trump's going to win. It's, are we going to engage on these issues and be able to, to fight them on those terms or are we going to cede to them what it means to be an American? Yeah. Well, well said. And I think that that's a great way to end this and let you go. Know, yeah. Thank you for this. I mean, this is a, the time just whizzed past again. Yeah. So, I didn't actually believe it when I just looked down at my, but this is, yeah, no, this is right. just congratulations on um, having, having this book come out. I, 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 I hope that uh, well, I expect to see you pretty much on uh, everywhere. I hope you, make, uh, <laughs> you do a lot that. of interviews, and and you're it's covered very very widely. I know we're gonna try to push it as much as we can. I think it's super super important. It's a very important time. There's a lot of vulnerabilities, and I am a little scared. I think you concerned me a lot more than yeah. I was before about I, yes, how I vulnerable. Know. I didn't know that it was a matter of weeks when the Supreme Court hears this. So. I mean, they already, they already, yeah, they already heard the case. They could decide it any day. It just depends on how it comes down. So we'll see. Right, right. So I, it is. Uh, I, I had the again. I had an advanced copy. I had the privilege to be able to read this amazing book. I yeah, blurbed it, and I've been. You know, I, I couldn't praise it enough. And I'll just stop now before you. Get <laughs> I know. You being white, you turn red a lot easier than I do. <laughs> so I, I'm gonna. Um, By the way, great so questions just, today in the live chat. Thank you so much for sending yeah. us great questions. Sorry if we missed any, but we we tried to we covered most of them, right? Yes. Yeah, and yes. if anybody missed any, um, I tried to be pretty available on oh, yeah. Facebook and Twitter. Cool. So feel free to reach out, and I'll I'll happily answer uh, whatever you didn't get to ask. I'm I'm happy to do that. Do you mind telling your Twitter handle for anybody listening right now? Yeah, it's Andrew L. Seidel, S-E-I-D-E-L, uh, all one word, no no spaces or hyphens or anything like that. And that's also Facebook, Instagram, all those fun things. So I might, I'm mispronouncing your name when I say Seidel, right? Yeah, but I don't even notice. I yeah. literally don't notice. Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, it's technically Seidel, but I honestly don't don't notice at all. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, so thank you, Andrew Seidel, thank for you. your time, and thank you for the conversation. Uh, thank you, all of the patrons, Alex Avaz, Michael, uh, Buy Everything, uh, Bogey. That was uh, lots of really great questions from you. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, and uh, Mohammed Syed, uh, who else is there? John Camacho. Mike. Um, Mars, Mike as usual, RPG game gamer. Game. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway. Well, so, yeah, thanks, thanks, everybody. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.